This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. It is Thursday. We're Dr. Mattless today, but that's okay. I'm Jeff Simpson. I'm filling in for Dr. Matt, who's away in, in beautiful Georgia. He's got Georgia on his mind, just like Ray Charles. We've also got Cole Wissinger here, who's running the board for us. And, of course, Terry South, our wonderful producer. And, uh, you know, yesterday we had a lot of fun with some really interesting topics that uh, we hope can spark some, not debate, but uh, just spark some of your interest here on the Matt Townsend Show. So it's not too late. If you want to tweet us at Dr. Matt Show, we'd love to get your opinions on the following items. We talked about heaven and what that looks like to you. So uh, if you want to give us your opinion on of uh, what heaven looks like to you, we'd love to hear from you, as well as whether or not you think driving a scooter is manly. Cole, what's your what's your opinion on that? It was a moped. Okay, I so I still the, the I guess don't understand. A moped. I still don't understand the difference between a moped a, and a, a scooter. A moped you can pedal. Okay, it's a, not a moped. A scooter then. is a very low powered motorcycle. So I told my wife moped, but I meant scooter. Okay, scooter. Yeah, yeah. scooter. So are scooters. Yeah. Is this a holdover manly. from the moped gang story? No, no, no. From we sure that was from Monday. Right. I mean, we've had, a, we've had a moped themed week. It seems like that's good. I, I went on a I, guys I weekend. And we rode a scooter. I did not ride the pink scooter. I left that to my brother. Now, that certainly I don't think is manly. Well, I mean, to each his own. But, yeah, <laughs> scooters. There's some people that kind of give you a sideways eye when you jump on a scooter. What color would salvage the manliness of a scooter, True. I think, is a better question. Do you have to have flames on the side of a black scooter oh, there you go. to get any kind of manliness out of uh, That seems like you're overcompensating, but, you know, <laughs> But whichever. it's a scooter. I think you're right, though. I think that is the better question. I don't think the question should be, is riding a scooter manly? I think it should be, what can you do to make riding a scooter manly? <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, the color could have something to do with it. The design, maybe the clothes that you wear while riding it or or how you ride it. Leave Black the man capris at home. Is that what you're saying? Man oh, capris? Yeah. No, okay. For sure. I think another good question or another good uh, way we could look at it is, is uh, sporting a mustache while riding a scooter manly? The reason I bring that up is because Cole Wissinger is sporting... A pretty awesome mustache. This I, is why we keep it to radio. A lot of people can't and pull not it television off. Downstairs. I think Cole is doing a fabulous job of pulling it off. Thank you, Jeff. And we can't have beards here at BYU, but we can have mustaches. Something I'll never understand. Hmm. Yeah, today is also John Lithgow's birthday. John Lithgow, one of the few actors. That can be described as someone who, if you see him in a movie, he, it's just good, you know it's going to be a good movie because he's just good in everything he does. In fact, Cole, you and I next week are going to be having a discussion about anthologies of film and TV. Correct. And John Lithgow may or may not appear on my list. Ooh. Just a little tease there. And he is coming out with Daddy's Home Part, Part two. 2. I think that's the title of it. He plays Will Ferrell's dad and just looks hilarious in it. So happy 72nd birthday to John Lithgow today. He's 72. And uh, also coming up later tonight, 
the Dodgers have yet another chance to clinch a berth in the World Series, something they haven't done since 1988. I was on pins and needles last night as I was halfway watching the game. They were given plenty of chances, but they just couldn't pull out the big W. They they lost 3-2. to two. It was that close. Anyway, I'm sure I'll have a chance to talk to Spencer and Jerem about that on Sports Nation later on in the program. But uh, first and foremost, let's head over to Terry South, who's going to give us a little taste of what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? The mother of a soldier killed in Niger this month confirmed Florida Representative Frederica S. Wilson's claim. The President Trump told her family that her son must have known what he signed up for. The Washington Post reported Wednesday, President Trump disrespected my son and my daughter and also me and my husband said uh, Kawanda Jones-Johnson, the mother of uh, Sergeant LaDavid John- T. Johnson. When, uh, Wilson told MSNBC that Johnson's widow, w- widow was crying the whole time, and when she hung, hung up the phone, she looked at me and said he didn't even remember his name. That's Ooh. the hurting part, Jones-Johnson told Washington Post. So Wilson's account of the call was accurate. It was the wrong thing to say, but that's not the worst part. He did not even know LaDavid Johnson's name. He kept referring to him as your guy. He oh, never spoke no. his name. So that was even more painful. I, you know, we'll, we'll run through this whole timeline in a minute. It's very interesting how it's a very simple process, but it's turned into two weeks of chaos for really just it's a simple process. Make some phone calls. I will say, and I don't want to say in President Trump's defense, because I, I don't think I should ever say that. Right. But it can be difficult to know what to say to somebody who is grieving right. over the loss of a loved one, you know, because. A lot of people don't deal with that on a regular basis or, you know, they're not close enough to the person to say something that could be meaningful or personal that could help the person feel better. But clearly, he didn't but know anything about this guy. The person's maybe not name, even his name. They usually give him like a rundown sheet of each True. person as you're making a phone call. That's why you have a staff to you help have you people. out. Right. Oh, well. Other news the Trump administration is planning on increasing uh, an increase in federal immigration jails across the country for thousands of additional undocumented immigrants. Its agenda. Uh, its agents are arresting, according to a story in the USA Today. In recent weeks, ICE enforcement agents have put out requests to identify privately run jails in Chicago, Detroit, St. Paul, Salt Lake City, and southern Texas, according to notices published on a federal contracting website. So they're mm-hmm. immigration jails to catch those. And the people they tend they are arresting are people who haven't committed any crimes. Mm-hmm. They're here. They, they're undocumented, but... Where about the bad guys that we heard about? Yeah. Like we're just picking up like a guy that's people showing up to court to help out as a witness in a court case get arrested because they happen to walk in and ICE is standing there. <laughs> Stuff like that's happening. It's I don't know. Hmm. It seems like it's a little over the top, but I how do you enforce immigration? That's right. something that this nation's been debating for years. A yep. 37-year-old man suspected of killing three co-workers in Maryland earlier in the uh, yesterday was captured Wednesday. Uh, evening in Delaware, police said authorities said uh, Righty Lab uh, Laby Prince walked into Advanced Granite Solutions in Edgewood, Maryland, shortly before 9 a.m. Wednesday. Shot five people before fleeing. Three were killed. Two remain in serious condition at a University of Maryland uh, medical center. The owner of Advanced Granite Solutions said Prince had worked there for four months as a machine operator. Um, there was one person specifically he was targeting. And uh, he, uh, he had, said they had beefs with that specific victim. He was shot twice and is expected to survive. 
the, the shooter has an extensive criminal record, 15 felony, and four misdemeanor convictions in Delaware. So they were able to catch him, but oh my he uh, fled across state borders. And so kind of, well, Maryland, Delaware, it's kind of a, a short hop. Hmm. So he's able to get over there and they arrested him. But yeah, it's kind of a, a horrible story there. <sighs> um, and finally, this one, um, on, on different level, kind of, uh, it, it is a wrong it is horribly wrong this is happening. I think people are being robbed. Okay. And it needs to be, needs to be fixed. Does this, is this food related? No. Um, you've, you've heard of like big tobacco? Yeah. Right? And then there's big pharmaceutical. Yeah. Big companies that can work legislation with the government and get their way and it seems sort of underhanded. We're talking about big eye drops here. Oh, boy. When you put eye drops in your eye and a bunch of the liquid spills out, that's not necessarily user error. A ProPublica investigation part of the publication series on how billions of healthcare dollars are wasted each year finds that eye drops are way too big, some of them more than twice what the eye can actually hold, resulting in drainage and waste. A lot of the waste, considering U.S. drug companies made $3.4 billion last year on eye drops for dry eyes and glaucoma alone, not only are users paying for the drops that end up wiped on a tissue, but that waste can have a serious impact on patients like Gregory Matthews, who has glaucoma and sometimes runs out of drops before his refills are available. Using eye drops consistently is important for glaucoma patients because it helps keep blindness at bay. Making matters worse, smaller drops are possible. In the early 90s, a micro drop was developed and studies conclusively found patients were able to administer it safely and effectively, leaving no waste. See, this is the classic example of people given too much power right. and they abuse it. It says, the micro drops never came to market. Experts say it's because drug companies are too concerned about losing profits. It's the same size bottle of eye drops. It could now last twice as long if micro drops were used. Those in the eye industry have long known the drops are too big, yet decades later, smaller drops are no closer. This is interesting because there are plenty of products where I personally have felt like, oh, they're just trying to get me to go through it faster so I have to buy more. I've never thought of that in the way of eye drops. You, I, my entire life, you put eye drops in, it runs out, no problem. You just kind of wipe it up, move on. It's just, that's how it works. Well, apparently we're being robbed. My goodness. Each, each, and I, I use eye drops morning and night because of contacts and they just my eyes tend to be kind of dry and it kind of bugs me so i use them and there's apparently a lot of money i'm wasting as those eye drops run out of my face uh i don't want to say anything good or bad about this company but do you do you remember the uh the product clear eyes that yeah, was yeah. uh you know ben stein was on those mm-hmm. all those commercials yeah clear eyes uh he is the bueller bueller guy from ferris bueller's day off Anyway, this brings up another good point. Are we ever going to see you in glasses? No. Why not? I have them at home. I don't need them. <clears throat> but in, inquiring minds want to know. Why would you want to see? Why, why would I need to be in glasses? <laughs> Come on. Everybody wants to know what you look like in glasses. Imagine me with glasses on. There you go. It's really not that big of a leap. Well... I, now, I think the next best thing is to take a Sharpie to your face as well, you, as you, you take a nap. You could, but I don't really sleep around here either, so good I luck. Would, I would never do that because I don't want to end up with a black eye myself. Well, you know, personal space. <laughs> Watch yourself. So back to the story with Trump okay. and these, these uh, four uh, Green Berets that died in uh, Niger, right? Mm-hmm. So here's the the timeline on this is interesting. October 4th, mm-hmm. they were killed. 
the four four soldiers. Okay. Fit, on the fifth, Sarah Sanders, she's the media spokesperson for the White House, conveyed thoughts and prayers for the fallen service members. I'm not sure if she said it in the meeting or if there was like a Twitter thing or we, whatever. We, we talked had a about, guest thoughts, about and prayers. thoughts and prayers. Yeah. Fox News Radio John Decker asked about the uh, the mission in Niger and the White House briefing, noting that there has been no response to this by the president, no tweet from the president, no statement from the president. October seventh. This is when the news coverage really tapers off. Very few mentions across the uh, national news media just kind of goes away. October 10th on uh, CNN, Jake Tapper points out while the uh, president has tweeted dozens of times since last Wednesday, he has not tweeted about this situation in these four green braids that died. Hmm. On the 12th, another CNN, uh, Chris Cuomo, he does their morning show. He goes, please look at the service members on your screen. They all gave their lives for this country. And he said Trump has not mentioned them. He, it's something that needs to be called out. This needs to be mentioned. And wow. October 12th, uh, a reporter at CNN says, I've actually reached out to the press office here at the White House. No response. And then um, on the 15th, which was uh, Monday, it says Sarah um, – So a week and a half later. CNN Sarah Murray asked, "We haven't heard, why haven't we heard anything so far about the soldiers that were killed in Niger? And why do you? what do you have to say about that? Trump's response has been discussed at length. And dissected, he said, uh, personal letters have been sent or they're going out tonight. And some point he'll call the parents. Then he brought up Barack Obama and other past presidents. Most of them didn't make make phone calls. A lot of them didn't make calls at all. And Which, then that, that was responded to. That was found to be not completely true there. And then it goes on and it's like somehow they've made this worse. Right. Wow. So instead of just making the phone calls, it's like they didn't say anything and then they didn't respond. And when they did respond, it was convoluted and kind of just it seemed like Trump was talking off the top of his head instead yeah. of maybe thinking about how you want to approach this. And then and then he makes that night after he's asked about the phone calls, he makes the phone calls. And then we hear the story about the woman and Trump says something about he knew what he was getting into. And that, of course, doesn't I mean. I can kind of see what he's trying to say because, we, like you were sure. saying, Trump doesn't seem to be a guy that has a lot of experience talking with people in situations right. like that. So yeah. what do you say? You can talk yourself into a point where you're like, and you just try to say something, and maybe that's what happened. Who knows? But he said that. Then yesterday he came out and said he didn't say it. Now we have the mother of the fallen soldier saying he absolutely said that, and then mm. it took it a step further saying the president didn't even mention my son's name in the phone call, leading us to believe that he doesn't even know his name. So, so what are we doing? Well, what's It just yeah. seems like they're making the, they're compounding this by just show some human emotion and try to, you know, I mean. You, but that's just yeah, the thing, right? Donald Trump has qualities that one could view as being good for a leader. He was a businessman and a leader for a long time, and he obviously got elected for those things. No one is going to admit that he's a personable or vulnerable kind of person. This right. is not the kind of thing that even his most devout supporters could possibly think he would be good at. No. <laughs> but it's not, it's, again, like that's not why they, that's not why he was elected. He wasn't elected because he showed a lot of compassion. He was elected because he was tough. Right. Right. right? And he that's what people strength. thought that the country needed right now. But yeah. the office of the president of the United States requires some nuance yeah. sometimes. My big question is, would we still be talking about this had he not taken it a step further by saying, I didn't say that and I have proof? Well, he did say that. I know. And then he didn't say then he didn't, if he didn't give us the proof. If he didn't say that though, oh, yeah, if he yeah, didn't yeah, perpetuate yeah. this, would we still be talking about and this? And that's this is what it comes back to. Almost every one of these situations, it's Twitter. 
Because he said that on, he put that on Twitter. If he just would pull back, just just even like fifty percent on the stuff that he puts on Twitter, a lot of this stuff would just disappear. So he has no problem taking to Twitter immediately, but when it comes to matters like this, where you know he should be getting on the phone or sending out even a stock letter, it takes a week and a half before any any response. And then the response comes after the media keeps asking questions, and then he yeah. brings up John Kelly, his mm-hmm. chief of staff, and his son that died. And then yesterday, the White House was like, "We're uh, John Kelly is very like offended that this has been politicized," and then people are pointing out, "Well, the president's the one that brought it up." You know, no one was talking about this until the president said about John Kelly and his son. He brought the story up. Yeah, the media stayed away from it because they know what John Kelly's feelings are on this. But the president's the one that politicized this. Right? Surely there so, is one nice, compassionate person in the West Wing somewhere. Well, probably now, the people that, that are telling him to reach out. Now, now there's a report back on October fourth. They actually printed a statement for the president to make a statement of compassion and condolence for the death of these four soldiers and it never went out and they made a phone call to the woman who actually drafted the letter and when they confirmed it was her and she figured out what who was on the phone she hung up the phone she's like no we're not going to talk to you about this would you rather have a a stock letter that's maybe a little more thought out and compassionate or a personal phone call from the president i don't know but I think I think the the bigger th- situation there's things where it's like soldiers died you make phone calls mm-hmm. you think the president would be like okay let's call let's talk to these families they've 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 given the ultimate sacrifice and for some reason it didn't happen and then instead of just saying maybe acknowledging a mistake and fixing it you kind of say something else that is easily found out that didn't happen and I don't know. But this is just something that ha- continues to happen where yeah there's the the obvious direction you should go and they don't go that direction then they try to lie or something or not lie but a mistruth lie lie seems to be too extreme a mistruth is put out there and then people fact check it and then they it just turns into a mess when you could just done the right thing the first time and i think what you just said is is a great way to put what he was trying to put into words which should not have been he signed up for this but he gave the ultimate sacrifice. Right. It's a, it's a great example of something else he could have said that conveyed a similar message. And they have people that write things for him, yeah. that help him to, yeah. here's a list of things you can say to this this person. And I don't know, that stuff doesn't seem to be happening in the White House. Maybe it's a administrative, a structural. What John Kelly was apparently listening to the phone call. Maybe he could have helped. I'm not sure how all this works, but just seems like there's steps that aren't being yeah. taken here. So Donald oh. Trump's also not the kind of man that admits fault very often. And so talking Are you kidding me? that way around it, saying, well, he signed up for it, is, again, just kind of shuffling off, like making sure that they know, hey, this is my this couldn't be my fault, right? Yeah. Sometimes it's just Which best isn't the to kind own, of thing you do. You it's know? sometimes best to own up to it. And it can be difficult. I'm not going to lie, because, you know, we here on the Matt Townsend Show, to a, a much smaller extent— our words are put under a microscope all the time, right? We have meetings about, well, we shouldn't have said this or we should have said this instead. So we get a small taste of that. But, I mean, it can be difficult to say the right thing 100% of the time. But maybe just with a little more thought and a little more compassion, you can say the right thing more often than not. So... Maybe this will be a great learning experience for President Trump on what not to do next time and and maybe what to do next time. 
And the sad thing is there will most likely be a next time that there will be fallen soldiers and he'll have to make another phone call or or send out another letter. So we wish him well and uh, hopefully we have something more positive to share with you in terms of President Trump's communication skills or lack thereof. Anyway, we're actually going to switch to a more happy topic. Yesterday, I just uh, celebrated an anniversary with my wife. It's a very happy time. I shared some happy thoughts on Facebook. Well thought out. And we're going to talk to a guest who is going to be giving us uh, the tricks to, not the tricks, but tips on being happy and whether or not you're living currently in a place that is conducive to your happiness when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We teased a little bit about happiness before we went to the break. What makes you happy? For me personally, my family makes me happy. Maybe a a good plate of nachos. Everyone does different things to make them happy, but why are some people so much happier than others? Author Dan Buettner discovered what makes the happiest people around the world so happy and is here today to share with us what he has learned. Dan, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, delighted to be here. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. Um, I'm I'm so curious to find out what you learned in your studies here because, you know, I'm constantly wondering, you know, is, is happiness a choice? Are my circumstances going to determine my happiness? So I'm just curious right off the bat, what are some of the happiest places on the earth that you found out about? Well, this is a project for National Geographic and a book called Blue Zones of Happiness. And the idea here was to find the statistically happiest places on Earth. And it turns out when it comes to academics, happiness is a, is a, a useless term because you can't measure it. So we measured life satisfaction, how you evaluate your life, uh, positive uh, emotions, how you experience your life, and then purpose. And, and Gallup... Whirlpool has now surveyed uh, a representative sample of 95% of the human population. And we were able to find the happiest place in uh, Asia and Singapore. They demonstrate that life satisfaction. Uh, The happiest place in Latin America and Cartago, Costa Rica. They experience their life day-to-day the very best. And then the happiest place when it comes to purpose in northern Denmark, a place called Aalborg. Interesting. uh, And then we distill it into what you can do. Okay, now I always thought that Disneyland was the happiest place on Earth. (laughs) I'm actually from Anaheim. Yeah, so what is it about these different countries that makes them happier places than than maybe America? Well, uh, first of all, enlightened leaders between 50 and 100 years ago put in place some policies that created an upward cycle of well-being and they they begin with making sure not necessarily that everybody has a phd but every kid it, it knows how to read they focused on educating women and especially mothers because when you have educated mothers 
they have fewer children, those children are healthier, they grow up to be more productive workers and better voters, and then the next generation is even better. And, and instead of focusing on sick care, which we do in America, most of the $3 trillion we spend every year is spent on trying to, um, to help people who have chronic disease, uh, they, they spend their money on, on really great public health. In Costa Rica, every man, woman, and child has a right to a free visit every year from a physician or a physician practitioner. So they, they catch heart disease, cancer, and diabetes before it's a 911 alarm. And happiness and health go hand in hand. Interesting. Okay, so that's in, that's in different countries. What about on a more local level? If we had to choose the happiest cities in the United States, are, am I... In, in one of them right now, we're in Provo, Utah. Is that uh, did oh that make God, the list? Oh my you are. Yeah. Yes. Oh, great. Yes. <laughs> so, okay, the happiest cities in America tend to be uh, Provo's number nine. Uh, National Geographic, That's not bad. Gallup, and Blue Zones. We did an index, one point five million surveys, and Provo's number nine. And um, so, and by statistically speaking, you know, you're, you're top. I mean, the, the, between the top ten are all pretty equal. And usually what happens in happy cities is local leaders early on decide to question the unquestioned virtue of development, and they start focusing on policies that favor quality of life. So they start designing their streets for human beings and not just automobiles. They... They invest in green spaces and trees. They have um, smoking laws. Smokers are unhappy, so denormalizing smoking really helps. And there's a huge correlation between the quality of the food environment. If you just let unmitigated growth of burgers, fries, pizzas, uh, unhealthy food, uh, you get unhealthy people and less happy people. So happier places have easy access to fruits and vegetables. And those are things... Um, any city can start to enact and and improve the uh, quality of life of their people. Interesting. Well, what are some other common factors that that happy people have, or that what what helps people be happier? Because to a certain extent, you know, you've heard that happiness is a choice, and I'm only as happy as I choose to be. But you know, certainly circumstances play into that. What are some other factors that go into us being happy? Okay. I'm standing on a chair with my arms over my head telling you that happiness is not a choice. Interesting. So the harder you try to be happier by changing your behavior, the more it is a recipe for neurosis. Because we, there, there are some things in you know, positive psychology, gratitude, appreciation, and meditation, all that, that will episodically make you happier. But as, as soon as you forget to do it or lose discipline, it goes away. So what Blue Zones of Happiness does is t- it distills an ocean of data to tell you what you can do to optimize your surroundings so you're more likely to be happy. This is setting up nudges and defaults so you're more likely to do the right thing than the wrong thing. And The biggest and, and most important thing you could do, the variable with the biggest variability is where you live. If you live in an unhappy place, moving to a place like um, Ogden is going to favor your happiness. Uh, living mm. in the right neighborhood. You want a neighborhood with sidewalks and trees, not a soulless suburb. You're more likely to be happy there. And then curating your social network. Um, if uh, unhappiness, grumpy people, those emotions are contagious. So if that's who you hang out with, 
guess how you're going to feel. Meanwhile, for every new happy person you add to your immediate social network, your own happiness goes up by 15%. So uh, taking the time to cultivate, and this requires effort, four or five friends who, number one, you can have a meaningful conversation with them on a daily basis. Number two, you actually like them. And number three, you can call them on a bad day and they'll care. That is mm. probably the most powerful thing you can do to stack the deck in favor of happiness for the long run. Those are great tips because, you know, lately we've been talking about social media and how it uh, can be a little bit of smoke and mirrors. You know, you go on to, to Facebook or, you know, another social media website and you see all these wonderful things that your friends are doing and they have these great pictures and it seems like they're the happiest people in the world and, and you start to look inward and think, well, what's wrong with my life? And, you know, that can be dangerous too. Bring up a good point. Uh, Blue Zones teamed up with National Geographic, and we surveyed 75,000 Americans and correlated their social media habits with their happiness. And we find that a little bit of social media, 30 to 45 minutes, favors happiness. And that's probably because people are connecting with their friends or they're taking a moment of well-deserved intellectual repose. But after about an hour of happiness, your uh, hour of social media, your happiness plummets. So um, minimizing your social media to under an hour a day will favor. Hopefully your you're, do, you're on there for less than an hour a day. <laughs> um, uh, hopefully you are on social media for less than an hour. Um, in, in one of these articles, you mentioned that uh, genetics can play a part in your happiness, too. Tell us more about that. Well, on average, this is for, like, imagine an auditorium of people for that collective, 40% of happiness is, uh, uh, is driven by genes. 15% is luck. You know, if you're born with constant pain or crushing depression, it's hard to be happy. And then 45% or so is up to us on average. And uh, the best way to think of it is we all have a set range. Some people are on the sadder end of the scale. Some people are on the happier end. But 40% or so of, that, of where you are within that range uh, is up to you. And, and I argue in Blue Zones of Happiness that uh, if you do all of the things I suggest to set up your environment so you're more likely to be happy, it's like playing blackjack with a deck full of aces and jacks. You're, you're a lot like, more likely to win. Yeah. Dan, talk to us about relationship status. I mentioned I just celebrated uh, an anniversary, and I, I'm very happy in my relationship. How about uh, happiness in relationships? So um, grumpy people should marry other grumpy people. They're, that relationship is likely to survive, and happy people marrying other happy people is likely to survive. But when you get a grumpy and a happy person marrying each other, that's usually a recipe for failure. But in general, uh, married people are about three times more likely to be happy. And by the way, it can just be a committed relationship. They're three times more likely to be happy than people who are single or divorced or widowed. So it's, it's a worthy pursuit. But um, I think 90% of your happiness or lack thereof is dictated by your, your, your partner in life. And you should, you should choose carefully. 
Well, Dan, we've we've gotten some great tips from you here today. Just in closing, I'm curious to know what we can do for people who feel like they're limited in their job choice or their partner choice or even where they live. What's something that they can do today to be on that path to being more happy? Well, to measure it. And at, at our site, bluezones.com, we have a free calculator, a true happiness test, which, that will actually listen to you, rate you on a curve, but give you some customized suggestions on what you can do uh, to be happier. Because everybody is a little bit different, and uh, the, this, the, depending on if you're excelling in, in life experience or, or pride or, or your purpose, you, you might want to rebalance your happiness portfolio. Happiness measuring, that's, that's fantastic. Dan, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you here on the Matt Townsend Show. His name is Dan Butner, and he's a National Geographic Fellow and multiple New York Times bestselling author. His new book is The Blue Zones of Happiness, Lessons from the World's Happiest People. His New York Times Sunday Magazine article, The Island Where People Forget to Die, was one of the Times' most popular and his National Geographic cover story, The Secrets of Living Longer, was a finalist for a National Magazine Award. His books have appeared on The Today Show, NBC Nightly News, Good Morning America, Dr. Oz, NPR, Oprah, and now The Matt Townsend Show. Anyway, Dan Butner, thanks again for helping us to learn a little bit more about what we can do to be more happy each and every day. We'll take a break. When we return, we'll continue the happy discussion here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show. We just finished speaking with Dan Butner, who's filling us in a little bit more on happiness and what we can do to be happy. And uh, it sounded like I stressed him out a little bit because he said he was standing on a chair, basically pulling his hair, because I, I had said that I had always heard that happiness was a choice. And he said, that's not right. thought that was interesting. Uh, he did talk a little bit about where you live can determine your level of happiness, and I had always thought that uh, Anaheim, California, or or Disneyland was the happiest place on earth. It didn't make the list, surprisingly. Probably because, uh, well, I, I don't want to go there, but I, I, I'm happy when I'm at Disneyland. I think a lot of people are, too. I'm not being paid by Disney to say this right now. So uh, let me just share a little bit of or a few of these places on the list that made the cut of the happiest communities on the list. Terry, you've seen the list, but Cole, if you had to guess some of the cities on this list, what would you say? What would you think? Let's see. So we're crossing the happiest place on earth out. Can I guess Happy Valley in Pennsylvania, where State College is, where Penn State is? Whenever you say Penn State, for some reason I think of the state Penn. Um, Two different things. You That's know? not as happy of a place, generally speaking. Right. <laughs> the prison. Um... I'm not seeing it here. Darn. I'm so sorry. What other cities would have happy nicknames? I think that's all I got. So Anaheim might not be on the list, but there are a ton of places in California that did make the list. For instance, there's Santa Cruz, 
Um, there's San Luis Obispo, San Jose, there's Santa Maria, Santa Barbara, uh, Salinas, Thousand Oaks, Oxnard, Ventura. Oxnard. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Those places are super expensive. It's just expensive. kind of a fun name to say. San Diego, San Diego Carlsbad, I could see that. Mm-hmm. Because you're you're kind of down by the beach, but you're far enough away from all the craziness that happens up in L.A. Um, also, several places in Colorado. Number one, Boulder, Colorado. Hmm. What's in Boulder? There's a university. Are there boulders there? A couple of even... those as well. Um, Fort Collins, yeah. Colorado. Maybe it's just the, the quality of life. Mountain air. Could be. Feeling good? You're out in nature all the time? Let me see if there are any other Colorado ones. Colorado Springs. There you go. Uh, I know you've lived in Texas, Terry. Sort of. Austin or Round Rock came in at number 25. It's the only Texas one I see, though. Yeah, well, (laughs) (laughs) Texas is its own place. Um, I am I didn't see a lot of happy sometimes. Anchorage, Alaska is number 10. There you I've go. been to Alaska. I could be very happy there. Yeah. Uh, interesting. But See, yeah, mostly... going through all of the California cities, you had me thinking that climate would play a really big part. And I then would we think got so. Colorado and Alaska entries to the list, and that yep. threw a wrench in that plan. Okay. Well, not really, because it's mostly California. And maybe the Colorado ones are for the people that just like, you know, more seasons than one. Um, Provo, Utah. Provo and Orem, it yeah. says. Number seven. So I work in Provo. I live in Orem. So I must be one of the happiest guys around. Double dose. So interesting. You, uh, wow. Now, we talked to Ron Hager, who comes on the show every other week. Yeah. And he talked when He's been on several times talking about blue zones, areas of the world where right. people are happy. And, and then it has we, to do with the food, right? Right. The food, the the lifestyle, what these people are doing. In Amsterdam, there's a lot of talk of most – a lot of the people ride bikes. So people are getting lots of exercise just riding bikes to work or yeah. around town. And that leads to better health. And so your your quality of life, your happiness goes up. And that, that so there's all these factors that go yeah. into it. Yeah. And Dan Butner mentioned uh, both of those things in his articles about people that cycle, people that eat healthier foods. He did mention that people that are you know always eating – Eating hamburgers and fries, they're not going to be as happy. And I think probably well, because you're putting on they, more weight. They might and, be happy in the moment oh, yeah. eating that hamburger because it's pretty good. But, you know, later on. Yeah. Old, you know. When you go to stand up and you're like, oh, Inevitably, yeah, you overeat those types of things. Yeah. So it's a, it's a good two minutes of happiness and then you overdo it and then your waistline but you know the the, the point being that you you see what these these states are doing or cities and countries are doing and maybe apply those lessons to yourself. Sure, you can improve your own situation, at least when okay. it comes to happiness. But as you ended the interview with the question, what happens when you're stuck with like this is what I do, this yeah. is my job? I don't have a lot of choices. You just can't flip your life overnight. You know, you have to look at the, the probably just look at the elements you can control. Right. Your home life, your family life. What can you change about your environment every day to, to lead to a happier situation? What can you do in your schedule every morning to maybe you start your day with maybe a walk or something. You do something yeah. more positive rather than what you're doing. I like what you're talking about with social media because, you know, people just kind of get bored and go over there and start flipping around on their phone. And a lot of the stuff on there isn't necessarily le- leading you to a happy thought. It's all kind of news. And news tends to be, you know, the stuff that happens in life that isn't. 
you know, we saved a cat from a tree and someone died, <laughs> and that's kind of a negative thought. So. Or Bill got to take that expensive European vacation and I didn't. Right. You see – you see the ideal parts of everybody else's life because yeah. no one no one takes the picture. Now we my family we've, we're taking pictures of like my my infant destroying the house. <laughs> you know they go in and they they go into the the cabinets and pull out all the the Tupperware right. container type stuff. They just dumped it all over the floor, and that's actually quite funny. Yeah, and people like that. But it's not like you know taking the family photo and it's we're looking at our family photos and every picture, of course, is staged and it mm-hmm. looks where everyone's happy. No one sits there and their actual emotion in a family photo ruins the photo, right? I yeah. mean, the photos were we're like, oh, I didn't like that smile. My head was out of order. Just oh, get rid of that one. Let's keep this one. And those are the ones my wife's probably going to throw up there so people see. Hey, here's our family. So staging and lighting can also play into happiness. It sounds like, or, or <laughs> manipulate the what it actually is happiness sure. when people see that later. My yeah. grandma's favorite photo of me and my cousins is one that we got taken probably 15 years ago by now. But the photographer could have been a stand-up comedian, and he was just constantly trying to crack jokes to get real smiles out mm-hmm. of us instead of the staged ones. Right. And and it worked. There's the three of us just laughing like we actually laugh whenever we're in the living room together. And that's one of her favorite photos of us. So, Terry, I want to I want to change. I don't want to change the topic. It's kind of a shift in the focus here a little bit. Speaking of things that we don't necessarily have a choice over men and women. Right. Who's happier, men or women or who has it easier in life? You want to do that now, or do you want to come back in just a moment? Let's come back in just a moment and do that because it is—it's a good enough topic that we—it's got legs. Good tease. It's got legs. Anyway, let's do that. We'll come back here in just a minute, and I think I already know the answer. And I'm I don't know—I don't know if you, you do. Really? You might be wrong. Okay. We'll see when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show. has it easier in life the men or the women i teased before the break i think i know the answer and i if i had to guess i would say for me personally i guess you know terry's going to share some kind of a statistic here that may prove me wrong but i personally believe that the men have it easier in life wow i do i really think that what do you base that on I base it on the level of pain that men are required to endure is not the same as women. Um, I, I feel like, well, it can be difficult because it, it does depend on what your home situation is like. Mm-hmm. My personal home situation is like I I come to work. My wife is also at work, but at home raising our three beautiful children. And so she's with them all day. And her ta- her patience is tested so much more than mine is, mm-hmm. and uh, she has to not only feed them but teach them. She has to, she has to bathe them. She has to deal with them. She has to clean up after them. Yeah. Deal. The, yeah, that's a good way to sum I, it up. I, I, deal I, with. I've them. always said that. My wife's like, "That's such a negative thing to say," and I go, "But when you're in the moment, yeah. you're just <laughs> dealing with these children. Yeah. You know, they have needs." You're facilitating whatever needs to happen so you can get to the next moment because their attention span is about five seconds and they want to be constantly entertained. And you're like, go play in traffic, but you can't say that. Right. People get all concerned when you say that. So I didn't say that. I just was, for instance, that may have been uttered in my house a few times. I don't have to give birth. 
doors are locked. Yeah, so they one of those out. three children is See, more recent than the other two. And you're saying whenever you started off, you led with less pain for oh, a man. Yeah. So during that birthing process, you're implying that your wife had a little bit more pain to deal with than you did? Yeah. Oh, Mine okay. was more emotional. Hers was physical. Right. Right. Yeah. I always tell my wife the, the birth process was great for me. <laughs> so, you monster. She's like, wow. <laughs> so this is a Pew Research Center. Puts a poll out, and they asked a bunch of questions. One of them, as they said, the perhaps the most provocative question. Ooh. Who has it easier, men or women? A majority of respondents, 56% said there's no difference. Interesting. 35% said life is easier for men. 9% said it's easier for women. Wow. So why would they say there's no difference? I'm not sure. Are the, Is this uh, coming from people that want more gender equality and don't want men and women to be different in any way, shape, or form? Not. It, it goes on. It says, those who say men have an easier life, 43% said it's because they make more money than women, and 29% said men have more employment opportunities or get other preferential treatment. Other reasons given were fewer household responsibilities, greater respect, and more political power. Some respondents also said men get better health care than women and don't have to worry about their physical safety or being harassed by anybody. Really. I mean, cause well, men. They they don't, men don't what, have to worry about well, being no, harassed by That's what by they're men. saying. Is that, that's why men have, an easy, have it mm-hmm. easier. That's why they responded that way. And you think about it, and it's like my, my wife has talked about like if she leaves work and it's dark, She's thinking of that's like in the front of her mind. Who's around me? Sure. What are they doing? When I'm when I'm out at night, I don't care. I just sort of walk around. I don't have any thought in the world, but who's going to come after me? Right. I mean, unless you really want to I mean, just the idea that my wife isn't, you know, a 200 plus pound, six foot male. So you're just <laughs> not going to, you know what I mean? Yeah. So just standing there, they're going to make a decision like, do I want to deal with that? It looks like that might be a hassle. Not that I'm like some you know, trained in all these, you know, fighting arts and stuff. I don't sure. really know how to defend myself other than I'll grab you and like crush you because I can sit on you or something. <laughs> but it's like, I, I don't, I mean, so, but just that, that opportunity to go after someone who is more vulnerable that you could, you know, have that, you know, overpowering uh, element on. You never know. I don't ever think about that. We just saw a movie with Jackie Chan. He plays this 60 plus year old guy and he, you know, tears everyone to pieces that's younger than him. So, so you um, never know. Among people who believe women have it easier, 30% say they have more job opportunities or receive other preferential treatment. 9% said laws and courts favor women. Respondents also, those are probably men who lost in court. Of to course. The woman. Respondents <laughs> also said women have more choices when it comes to work and family, more access to government assistance. If there's a choice between a man and a woman for a promotion, I feel women would be given preference, said a 60-year-old woman. Intra- that, now, that's really interesting. Yeah. Usually it's coming from a woman who's saying that women are not being promoted enough over men. Interesting. And maybe a man who was, you know, maybe passed over by a woman would think that the women get more Absolutely. opportunities than they would. Okay. So it's just, it's all from your point of view, but it's just interesting to to see how this works out. It's one of the largest partisan gaps in the survey emerges on this question. 49% of Democrats saying that men have it easier. 19% of Republicans say the same. Wow. You know what, though? I'm just going to go out and make a blanket statement. None of us have it easy. I think we all have our challenges. Absolutely. They're different. You could have a lot of money, but maybe you don't have a lot of love in your life. You could not have much money, but maybe you do have a lot of love in your life. The thing is, nobody has it easy. 
But our goal here on the Matt Townsend Show is to help you make it just a little bit easier each and every day. And we do our darndest each day to uh, to give you a little bit of entertainment, a little bit of info, a little bit of insight that can help you be happier, help you have it a little easier in life. That's it for this hour of the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back here in just a minute to give you more happiness and more insight. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We've been talking a lot about happiness on the show today. And also, who's got it easier, men or women? And uh, I'm joined here today by two men who've definitely got it easier than anybody else right now, Terry South and Cole Wissinger. Talk the only about. thing that could make it easier is doing this show not at 7 in the morning. <laughs> that is a great point. So how easy could it really be, Jeff? And I I mean, I, I kid, I kid, I'm sure Terry South has things that make things not so easy for sure. him. Sometimes I'll go to YouTube and it just doesn't play what I want it to play. That is horrible. And then my wife calls me and she's dealing with like real problems. Sometimes you have to yeah. sit through the 15 second ad instead of being able right. to skip after five. Or, or, or there mm. was an, my ad blocker was blocking the video from playing. I could hear the audio. So it was like, what's going uh. on? Why can't I see the video? And I had to sit there for like 10 seconds. And then I thought, I could do a Google search. So I searched and then Google said, hey, you might want to turn off your ad blocker. I'm like, oh, Right, yeah. the ad blocker. Then you turn. Then I was watching the video again. There's the stress level of my life. Mm. My wife calls with like real office situations. <laughs> She's going through problems, and then at the end of it, I go, "Do you know what happened on YouTube today?" And it yeah. just doesn't doesn't work. She doesn't have any empathy for my struggles. So the Dodgers are only up three games to one in the playoffs. There you go. And they they lost by a point or a, by a run last night. That's not acceptable to me. See? Real life problems. Yeah. So, you know, when I said that Cole and Terry have it easier than anybody else, it was kind of a blanket statement. And speaking of blanket statements or blanket way or, you know, just generalizations, how about the old one that uh, all cops love donuts? And uh, I love how the comedian Jim Gaffigan always says, that's interesting because you know who else loves donuts? Absolutely everyone. Yeah. So we're going to be doing a story here in just a minute about uh, a, a little deal that a man who's arrested has with police officers involving donuts. Oh, but it is kind of fun sometimes to make those generalizations, right, without any thought. What's the radio host generalization, Jeff? <laughs> the radio. Oh, gosh. You know, you tell somebody you work on the radio and they say, oh, yeah, you've got a good uh, – what do they say? You've got a face you've for radio. You've got a face for radio, yeah. which doesn't make any sense to me because you can't see on the radio. My problem is they're like, that's interesting. And yeah. then they tell me what radio station they listen to. I'm like – That's interesting. Thanks. Why would or, – or, sure. or, or again, I don't listen to that. I listen to this. Yeah. I'm like, what am I supposed to say to that? If you find out someone works for a credit union, you go, oh, I use a bank. Mm-hmm. Or you well, have, The conversation just stops because, like, what does that have to do with what you yeah. just asked me? Or, like, five minutes into the conversation, 
people ask what you do. You say, oh, I work on this radio program. Oh, yeah, I can hear that. And it's like, nah, too late. You had your chance. It's better now that I don't work in sports radio. Because mm-hmm. you say sports radio, the my experience is that most of the women roll their eyes. They're like, oh, how useless could that possibly – most of the guys are like, really? There's some guys that roll their eyes because they don't care, but the ones that say really, and then it's like for the next hour they're asking you all kinds of stuff. And I'm like, I push buttons and I read the news, and you're asking about like detailed salary cap issues. Sure. I really don't look into it that far. Not interesting, but you know, I make stuff up and kind of entertain the, the audience. Yeah, I, I also have access to ESPN.com. Yeah, I mean, it's right and, there. Same right, thing you got. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there must be some sort of a demand for it here locally because we have BYU Sports Nation. We have a handful of other new sports shows on BYU Radio and BYU TV. Well, yeah, but for that one team. Yeah. Not like all of it. We're gonna And we're going to be talking to Spencer and Jerem about that one team as well because – Thankfully, they're finally this weekend going to be playing another team that has the same record as they do. Yeah. One for six. So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe a one in a million chance, but we're saying there's a chance. That's right, Cole. Anyway, we're going to give Terry South a chance to give us a taste of what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's going on? We're nine months into the Trump administration, and the president has yet to let up on his crusade against fake news. Perhaps more surprising, however, is that nearly half of American voters seem to share his sentiments. A new political morning consult poll shows that 46% of voters believe the media makes up stories about the president. Only 37% think that the media doesn't make up stories, and 17% remain undecided. Mm -hmm. Republicans and Trump supporters are especially likely to believe in fake news. The poll found of those who strongly support Trump's job performance, 85% think the media makes up stories about Trump. 76% of Republicans feel the same way. The poll also addressed Trump's relationship with congressional Republicans, finding that most Republicans think Trump is better aligned with the American people than their representative. Do you feel like the whole fake news discussion is kind of fizzling out a little bit? Because we, we know that there's always been fake news. There will always be fake news. So this is still part of his crusade, huh? Yeah, he's still going strong with that. Uh, I. It's it, it gets kind of weak when you start applying it to the major news networks because they have a vested interest in not putting out fake news that can be easily found to be false, which oh, absolutely. fake news can be. So, and you can get in trouble. I mean, plenty of anchors and reporters have gotten in trouble. Fired. For, I mean, everyone's yeah. got a job. They don't want to do something that get themselves fired. So it seems kind of odd that that would continue, but we'll see right. what happens. On Tuesday, anonymous White House officials reportedly, including President Secretary, uh, Pres- Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders, reached out to numerous news organizations to inform them that former President Barack Obama had not called White House Chief of Staff John Kelly in 2010 after his son, Marine First Lieutenant Robert Kelly, was killed in Afghanistan. They did this because on Tuesday morning, President Trump has suggested to Fox News Radio, without being asked, that reporters go ahead and ask General Kelly if he got a call from Obama. Hmm. Maybe nobody took him up on the offer. Trump's decision to invoke Kelly's son was seen by some commentators as lacking in taste and decorum, since Kelly himself has made an, uh, uh, an effort to keep Robert Kelly's death out of the realm of political debate. The White House said that they were disgusted that they politicized the death of John Kelly's son. That's what the statement from the White House. Yeah. Except this all originated with President Trump bringing up 
John Kelly's kid. And did he did he really have the permission of John Kelly to bring up that story? Right. So it's like this whole story with the the four Green Berets yeah. and this all these other things. And it's like it started with the president on Fox News yeah. Radio. Uh, whatever. Huck- so Huckabee Sanders is she related to Mike Huckabee? It's his daughter. Oh. Hmm. Which some believe is why it made it really easy for the Huckabee to interview the president. Was it last weekend? Yeah. He just called his daughter. She said, yeah, sure, we'll set that up, Pops. Uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions refused to discuss his conversation with President Trump at his Senate Judiciary Committee oversight hearing Wednesday, citing executive privilege and frustrating Democrats. Uh, uh, I can neither assert executive privilege nor can I disclose today the content of my confidential conversations with the president, Sessions said. Democrats have maintained that because Trump did not invoke the privilege himself, the attorney general is not required to adhere to it. Sessions hmm. faced intense pressure from senators, including Vermont's Patrick Leahy, who forced him to admit that he has not yet been interviewed by special counsel Robert Mueller in the Russia investigation. Minnesota's Al Franken, who challenged Sessions for moving the goalpost regarding his conversations with Russian agents during the presidential campaign. Not being able to recall what you discussed with him is very different than saying, I have not had communications with the Russians. At one point, Jeff Sessions said, I have not had communications. At the next point, they're like, well, I can't recall my conversation with them. It's like, okay, you haven't had any conversation. Now you're saying you can't recall your conversation. Hmm. What's going on here? It's all in the wording. Sessions uh, and Franken got really kind of back and forth. Uh, Emotions got, got really elevated. It was quite, there's a video. It's quite interesting to watch as, as, as uh, Sessions tries to figure out how to get out from underneath his conflicting remarks in separate Senate-level hearings. you're you're going up against a comedian, somebody who can improvise and make you look bad. Franken Franken, uh, challenged Sessions over the Attorney General's inconsistent answers on what exactly happened. He goes, the ambassador from Russia is Russian. So if there's confusion there... Oh. <laughs> it was really funny. Wow. Sessions is, and then so Sessions little, stopped it. He goes, I do not have to listen to this. This is being a little condescending. my character impute. You know, that kind of a, a response. Sure. It was pretty funny. It's a good impression, by the way. I, you know, I do what I can. <laughs> uh, today's a big day. City's bidding for the new HQ2 for Amazon's second headquarters. Ooh. They plan to submit it. They want to, Amazon wants a second headquarters. They asked, they basically threw it out to the country like, okay, cities, give us your best offer. Today's Are we in a, on that? Probably. Okay. Every city in America is trying to do what they can to make a pitch. Oh, yeah. All of them have counted how many cloudless days they have. And like Albuquerque's like, we have 310 cloudless days a year, you know, that kind of thing. There were projections that had the Provo Orem Lehigh ish area in the top 25 of whatever that specific website so, made its projections for. So <laughs> the prospect of a $5 billion in investments and 50,000 jobs is what Amazon has talked about with this building. It's crazy. Project mayors from Toledo to Tulsa are making expensive promises that are uncertain to pay off. The winning city would have to provide Amazon with generous tax breaks and other incentives that can erode a city's tax base. Most economists say, and it's they say it's probably worth it. And Amazon headquarters is a rare case in which package, uh, packages of at least modest enticements could rep- repay a city over time. So when you make these sort of investments in, say, a sports stadium, yeah, what's the return on that? You, you, you're mm. like, okay, so all the people will leave the stadium, and so we build up a restaurant district, and we make the money off the people hanging out in the sure. area. So you're betting, you're gambling they're going to do that. With Amazon, 50,000 50, jobs. 50,000, yeah. You, and you're bringing all that, all that money from those jobs back into your community. There's some maybe better. That's kind of what the economists yeah. are saying. So we moved from Seattle 
we sold our home maybe a year too early because a year later, it our home that we sold was way mm-hmm. – it was worth so much more because people are moving from all over the world to work for Amazon. A lot of the other big companies there too, but this could be huge for any yeah. city that they The other sell thing to. they point out is Amazon will show up, put their company right there. And then it will create an entire tech sector because yeah. other companies oh, yeah. will just flock to be close because Amazon brings in a certain level of, of expertise in their employees and certain yeah. – you know, this isn't just like a product. This is a headquarters. This isn't a warehouse where they're filling your you know, whatever doodad you bought off Amazon. There's stuff sure. in no box and shit. But these are people that are dealing with technology and building up that way. And so those people don't just always work at Amazon. They'll filter out to other companies. And so you build up an entire tech like community, all these different businesses, and it raises your tax base with other businesses coming in. Which is why I think Cole brings up a good point. You know, Orem, Provo, Utah, Lehigh, it, it could be a great place for that because things are kind yeah. of increasing here in that So the New York Times too. went through all the different categories, okay. and they say it'll best place is probably Denver. Denver. Yeah. Okay. So other news, hmm. uh, some guy tried to <gasps> Wait climb. Wait a minute. Well, Colorado is one of the happiest places on Earth. It's happy. In other news, a man dressed as uh, Pikachu, one of the Pokemon characters, tried to climb the wall at the White House on Tuesday. Pikachu. Um, Secret Service officers <laughs> arrested him at the perimeter. He's a guy named Curtis Combs of Somerset, Kentucky. He jumped the concrete barrier on the outer perimeter, walked up to the gate, tossed a bag over the top, told police he was unarmed. They told him, don't climb the fence, and he climbed the fence anyways, and they arrested him as soon as he stepped down on the other side. He had told the Secret Service agents he wanted to be famous and hoped to accomplish that by jumping the White House fence in a Pikachu outfit and posting it to YouTube. He told investigators he could not complete the video because the officers responded too quickly before he could actually make the recording. The ah. real question is, was Pikachu shocked by maybe a taser type thing in I, the scuffle? It, it did not say that. It, it wasn't a scuffle. They were waiting for him. He stepped down on the, off the fence. They arrested him and moved him away. He, that's why he's like, I don't have a gun. <laughs> don't, you know. And then they said, we choose you, Pikachu, to spend the night in jail. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So here's another police-related story. Mm. We talked about this and what it has to do with donuts. Because obviously, if you talk about police, you have to talk about donuts, right? Even though everybody, according to Jim Gaffigan, loves donuts. A Jacksonville man was arrested after he tried to bribe officers, according to a police report. Craig Barnes, 25, was arrested Saturday outside a restaurant. According to a police report, an employee asked Barnes to leave several times, but he refused. Officers said they also asked him to leave, but he ran back inside because he wanted his drink. What kind of a drink was it that that was so good that he had to get it? He refused to leave and was placed under arrest for trespassing. Hmm. While in the car, Barnes told police several times that he would pay both officers $50 to let him go. Not a good idea to be bribing a police officer. The report says an officer asked Barnes if he was trying to bribe them, and he said yes. Also, probably not a good idea to admit to that. Uh, You know, you could just say, oh, no, I was just kidding. It was just talking. We're just talking here. Yeah. We're just riffing. And that he would give them $50 and buy them some donuts. Wow. He really sweetened the deal. Well, now you're talking. Yeah. (laughs) The report says Barnes became agitated and started kicking the seat. Barnes tried bribing them again and offered each officer $1,000 if they released him. Wow. See, now, why couldn't United Airlines have yeah. used this tactic? $50 Don't, to $1,000? Right. Like that. Maybe even donuts. 
Is it donuts? We'll give you donuts. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm off the plane right now. See, if they would have just jumped up in their price a little bit more, and I don't mean to single out United Airlines. It could be any airline well, no, that's trying to bump They're the ones you. That, that had someone physically dragged off an airplane. That's so, true. Yeah, this is a fact. So maybe they need Barnes to well, do their negotiating And they've for changed them. their policy now. Now it turns into like a... Like you're at some auction house and you're oh, like, you're saying that, yeah, bucks, like a game. 2, 000 bucks. Like someone got five grand to get off an airplane a couple weeks ago. That's awesome. Awesome. And, every, and everyone applauded when it was over. They're like, yeah, that was amazing. It's like a game show. It's like they need to bring out a big old <laughs> wheel and just spin your wheel of prizes. Who big money, off? big money, big money, no yeah. worries, and stop. Yeah, just turn it into a game show. That would be awesome. That would be so cool. You know, Halloween is coming up. It's no secret. We're actually going to be hearing a little bit more about Halloween from Leanna Tan later on in the hour. One of her little tangents. We do have another story about uh, a pumpkin, a squash. A Rhode Island grower uh, is first in the world to achieve a trifecta in the hobby of growing gargantuan foods. World records for heaviest pumpkin, longest longest long gourd, and now heaviest squash. After previously breaking two records, Joe Jutras got his third during the weekend when he smashed the giant squash record with one that weighed more than a ton. Wow. He couldn't have just squashed the giant squash record. Wah, wah. Smashing pumpkins. Uh, his green squash tipped the scales at 2,118 pounds. His other titles came in uh, came in 2006 when he broke the record for longest gourd with a 126.5-inch gourd. And in 2007 when he broke the record for largest pumpkin with a fruit that weighed in at 1,689 pounds. Wait a minute. Is a pumpkin a fruit? Uh, seeds on the inside? Technically, I've never thought of a pumpkin as a fruit. Either way, it sounds like a pretty great pumpkin. Okay. That Charlie Brown. When will he ever learn? What was the What's the name of that again? It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown? Correct. All right. Just one of the many Halloween shows you can check out. Anyway, when we return, we're actually not going to be talking to our guest about Halloween, but we are going to be talking about leadership and what servant leadership is all about. When we return, we'll be speaking with Jude Rake here on The Matt Townsend Show. Many people see leaders as the commanding, born-to-lead type. Yet, not all leaders are born to lead. Leadership expert Jude Rake believes the best type of leader uh, is to be a servant leader. He is here with us today to share about how leaders can focus on serving others. Jude, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Thank you, Jeff. It's nice to be with you. I'm so excited to speak with you on this topic because I think we've all had a boss at some point or another, and I certainly would not include my current boss in this discussion. I think my current boss, Don Shaline, he's probably listening, uh, is a fantastic boss. But, you know, as I said, a lot of us have had some kind of a boss that has just really struggled to be a good leader. And that's, you know, that's putting it nicely. So what does, just first of all, what does being a good leader mean? to you? And then also, 
what do what do most people see in a leader that is not included in that discussion? Or uh, to put it a different way, so there's a bad way of wording it. What's kind of the stereotypical leader that people see that that may not be a good leader? Well, there's been a lot written about that, right? I mean, uh, Jim Collins and others have written about how most people think that charisma and uh, presence really matter most. And and to some extent, those are important virtues or capabilities. But um, to me, it's really simple. Uh, The best leaders bring out the best in others. And um, too often, you know, I I think really smart people uh, work hard and and claw their way uh, up that ladder uh, into leadership roles by delivering great results, uh, having a lot of good individual accomplishments, uh, but then they, they, they get up into a, a leadership role and suddenly they, they struggle uh, because they, they really haven't focused as much on bringing out the best in, in others. And a lot of the training and development we see in most organizations is geared toward teaching people requisite skills, but not a lot of time is spent on developing leadership skills. There's just a, an, an inherent assumption that leaders are born. Um, hmm. And I, I believe strongly that leaders are developed. Uh, these are skills that can be learned over time, and, and that's a big part of what my book's about. Sure. And sometimes, you know, being a leader is all about who you know or, you know, whose dad is running the company. Not all the times, but um, I, I'm interested to learn more about servant leadership. So tell us a little bit about what servant leadership is. And I noticed here in this article that you've written that there are nine principles of servant leaders. So let's go through some of those as well. Yeah, let's let's do that. As I mentioned, I, I think the best shortest definition I have for a servant leader is someone who brings out the best in others and really remains focused on that. And you know, I think the biggest test for that is during the tough times. A lot of people talk about your, you know, the best test of your character is how you behave when 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 no one's looking or, or during really difficult times. And I think the best servant leaders have the emotional intelligence to suspend judgment and to not overreact in difficult situations and stay focused on how they're going to bring out the best in the people they're working with or, in many cases, leading. The, the nine principles that I, I detail in my book, I'll just run through them real quick. Number one is, is growing other leaders and difference makers, not just followers. So a real focus on people development and developing the skill sets of the people around you on your team and maybe partners. Uh, the second one is building and orchestrating synergistic, high-performance teams that are more powerful than the sum of their parts. Uh, and in my uh, in my book, I talk about a few role models for each one of these. I have a few examples, success models, and also some metaphors. Um, the third one is focusing your organization, whether it's a business, a university, a church, any organization. Servant leaders can be anywhere, but focusing them on strategic priorities, and simplifying your operations to accelerate progress. To me, this is one of the hardest parts about leadership because there are so many, as you move up into a, a, a leadership role, there are a lot of things that a lot of people want to do, and really focusing the resources of your organization on those those initiatives that matter most to whoever you're serving is, is a, a key ability. The fourth one is championing the people who either purchase or use your products and services. Uh, so many times an organization becomes internally focused just by nature, coming into the same office or the same building every day. It's really easy 
for inertia to take over and become internally focused. So it's so important for leaders to keep their organization focused externally. The fifth principle I talk about is cultivating a performance-based culture of innovation that unleashes the innate desire that people come to their job uh, to create and solve and, and, and contribute to winning. Uh, I think so often we people join a, a, a job or take on a new role and they're really excited, but over time they, they kind of lose their, their, in, their interest. And, and that's coming out in the data. Uh, Towers Perrin, uh, or it's now Towers Watson, but uh, Gallup, uh, Deloitte, there's study after study showing that less than 30% of the workforce is truly engaged. They might be satisfied with their job, but they're not really super engaged uh, because, um, you know, their leaders have really not engaged them in the plan for success. And, you know, they have a couple questions on their mind. Uh, how are we going to win? What's the plan? And what's my role? How can I help us? And too often they're not being involved in the development of that plan, and so they can't answer those questions. So they come in, they do their job, they're satisfied, they can check their Facebook on, on their computer, they, they make money, they go home, put food on the table. But they're not really engaged in, with the willingness to step in and go to the next level. And that's what leaders need to do. And that challenge has gotten – that bar has been raised because we raise millennials. Uh, you know, I have two millennial children, and not children anymore, they're adults, but – uh, to look for meaning and purpose in their lives. When I grew up, my mom had told me, you know, go to work, work hard, and good things will happen to you. Uh, we raised this generation differently to look for meaning and purpose, and I think that's good. Hmm. We also have more women in the workforce, um, and I think that is raising the bar from an emotional intelligence perspective. So the next one on the list, on number six, is communicating. And, and I mean really relentlessly communicating to give the workforce the context they need to sign up for and truly commit to achieving the company's goals. And too often I see leaders that just communicate something once and think they're done. And, and the reality is it's been proven you got to hear something around seven times to, for it to really sink in. Yeah. So this is something wow. that has to go on and on. The seventh one is uh, seeing the world through the eyes of others. I mis- mentioned emotional intelligence earlier. This is something I learned from my wife over the years, who's a psychodynamic therapist, and and just studying with psychology with her, how important it is um, uh, to to put yourself in other people's shoes and set a model that breeds a healthier organization. The eighth principle in the book is all about integrity and being the model you want emulated. Um, um, operate transparently, deliver on your promises, and and really remaining steadfastly focused on on doing the right things and. Uh, you know, the, the, the culture the, uh, for a company or an organization is only as good as the worst behavior a leader will tolerate. So mm. that integrity piece is really important. And then the last one is, is coaching people to achieve more than they thought po- possible. And this is all about modeling. Uh, you know, people need a, a, a model of success more than they need a critic. And I've been coaching uh, youth basketball for 35 years, and I see this all the time where coaches are screaming and yelling at kids constantly, and there's always something that can be fixed. Uh, but, but taking somebody and putting them on a pedestal and praising them in front of everybody for the, the organization to see what success looks like, that really inspires everybody to step up, and it reveals what success looks like. So it's all about catching people doing something well. So those are the nine principles. These are all great, you know, and and I think they're really good for everybody because you you might not be in a position where you are a leader at work, 
Um, and certainly you can be alert, a leader on a smaller scale at work to your, you be an example to your coworkers, but maybe you're coaching a youth basketball team like you mentioned, or maybe yeah. you're fulfilling some kind of a role in a church calling, or, you know, you're, you're trying to be a good influence on, you know, your children or, or people in the community. There, these are principles that we can all apply in our lives. And I'm, I'm curious to, uh, to see how we can overcome some of these obstacles that we experience as we're trying to become better leaders. You mentioned communication, and it seems like a lot of people, especially in the office, they kind of take the route of least resistance, or they, they try to be a little passive-aggressive passive where, you know, I'll write an email that kind of is all-inclusive, but really I'm trying to talk to this one person. And instead of just going to that one person and speaking to them, how what are some ways that leaders— can improve their communication so that the message gets across and it gets across quickly and most effectively? Well, I think it's really important, especially today when we're so addicted to our smartphones and, and, and email, to, as you mentioned, to get out of the office um, and, and really press the flush. And I encourage the CEOs that I work with and, and, and other leaders too, not just CEOs, uh, to schedule walk-around time, to actually make sure you're still getting face-to-face time. Because most most of the time, leaders are trying to drive some kind of change, some kind of transformational change in their organization. And for people to really change their behavior, they need context. And they because people don't really fear change. You hear people talk about this all the time. They're, you know, they're, they fear change. No, they don't fear change. They fear loss. Hmm. They fear loss of security. They might fear loss of the job. They might fear just just loss of of uh, um, of their uh, mastering whatever they've been doing. Now you want me to do it differently. Well, that's going to take some good communication and context setting for for them to do that. And and just firing things out on email, copying uh, a lot of people. A lot of times there's noise uh, for for a lot of people on the other end of that. Um, and, and then, of course, there's the reply all uh, contagion that, that has hit our society, which really contributes even more noise. Um, so I really encourage people to get out of the office and, and don't forget about the importance of face-to-face interaction. That's great. You know, and we, we've had other guests on the show that said that this is an opportunity to get some exercise, too. They'll take their their meetings out on a walk with them, which is also a good idea. Um, Love that. Yeah. yeah. Especially, if the, especially if the weather's good outside. Right. <laughs> That's a great point. Um, now, what about leaders who uh, they they seem to have a problem with you mentioned this. It seems like you mentioned this earlier in the interview where maybe they're a little impulsive or they get angry too quick without, you know, taking a, a step back from the situation and, and really taking time to think about it. What what would you say to those leaders who struggle with impulsivity? Well, I, I think this is a real challenge. I know as I moved up to become a, a CEO uh, in my career, uh, after a while, I felt like I was constantly playing a game of whack-a-mole. Uh, there, you know, there, there were always issues and problems, and and it's really easy to develop a negative attitude and to get frustrated with people and wonder what the heck they're doing, and 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 that's where I think the emotional intelligence piece comes into play, where you got to force yourself to get out and seek first to understand and use one of Stephen Covey's uh, principles, and 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 it kind of goes hand in hand with that communication piece we just talked about, but. It's really easy to get into a mode of judging other people 
Uh, and I think it's really important to get out, whether it's a customer, um, a colleague, a teammate, um, or even an adversary sometimes, and, and really take the time to, to see the world through their eyes and seek first to understand how they're looking at it, because that can sometimes be a real learning moment, uh, a real opportunity for, for us to grow. That is a great tip, just putting ourselves in other people's shoes. Um, curious to know about, because as I mentioned, we might not all be in a leader position at our at our jobs, but in other areas of our lives, we can be seen as leaders. And we have to depend on other people to accomplish some sort of a task. And how do we do that to the point where we allow that person to have the freedom to complete the task on their own, but also to indicate to them that we expect them to be responsible or that we expect them to be accountable? How do we find a good balance there and not, you know, hovering over their shoulder too much? Well, again, this comes back to first putting yourself in their shoes and thinking about what would you want? Um, uh, most of us, most of the people we work with want to do a good job. They, they want to make a contribution. They want to be on a winning team. Um, you know, I think that the, the most of us try to surround ourselves with, with the most talented people we can possibly find. And, 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 and we're secure enough to, to hire or, or join a team with people who might even be better than us. Um, so I think keeping that growth mindset that, um, that you can learn something from other people in mind is important. I think when it gets tough is when you're feeling like somebody's not carrying their weight. Um, and, you know, you, you uh, feel like maybe the job's not going to get done as well as you, you think it should be done. And that's where it's important not to be Pollyannish. A lot of people hear the term servant leadership and think soft. Um, I'm mm. not talking sympathy here. I, I'm talking empathy, and there's a big difference between empathy and sympathy. Sure. Um, it's great to be empathic, uh, but that doesn't mean you avoid tough conversations. It doesn't mean uh, that we're Pollyannish. Um, I think one of the most important things leaders do is to be honest with people about their performance, because, because difference makers and the, those high performers are repelled by people who aren't doing their job and aren't living up to expectations. So first and foremost, it's being honest with people when they're not performing up to standards. And then, and then coaching them and giving them a chance to improve their performance. And if, they're, if they can't, uh, being honest with them, because life's too short to hang out in a dead-end job where people don't think you can do a very good job. Uh, and it may be time to compassionately move them along and, and bring in somebody who can elevate the performance of your team. So in no way am I suggesting that, that be having high emotional intelligence or empathy means that we're uh, Pollyannish. Jude, I'm curious to know uh, what kind of uh, – you've done a lot of research clearly, and uh, I want to know what what ideas are coming from the employees themselves. For instance – what, from an employee's perspective, could their boss do to be to serve them? Like in, in an employee's eyes, what uh, what does service look like? Well, I mean, all nine of these principles are the answer to that question. I, I will tell you that um, I do a lot of strategic planning work with with organizations, typically family-owned organizations, and a lot of times when we get started, the the owner or the leader. Uh, or the board or the leadership team 
wants to go off-site and lock themselves in a room for a day or two and hammer out the solution. Um, typically, this is called a root cause analysis. What are our issues and challenges? What are the root causes and what actions should we take? And I, I think that's a good analysis. The problem with that being your plan is it's built on a foundation of weaknesses. And the best plan is built on a foundation of core values and strengths. So I think it's it's really important that you engage the broader organization. You ask what employees want. Well, what they want is to be included. And we use a process where the leadership team does a lot of work, but they also then reach out and build sub-teams deep within the organization that involve the difference makers, the real high performers. And it's always amazing how many blind spots, how many um, new ideas are uncovered simply because we asked. And, and leaders will say, wow, you know, I thought we were already talking with our people, but we, they hadn't really fully engaged them in the development of a plan that's going to help them win in the marketplace. So most people just want more, I said it before, context on where we're going and how we're going to get there. They also want to be involved in the development of the plan to get there. Do you think employees are saying yes enough to their – or employers are saying that enough to their employees when an employee will come to them with a special request or I could do my job better if X, Y, and Z were lined up just this way? Or do you think that's even important or can is there a danger in that? I think it's important to constantly be engaging with the workforce on how we can get better. I mean that – that leaders need to build in that growth mindset throughout the organization. Uh, but, but it's not easy. Uh, look at uh, how many times have you seen suggestion boxes put into organizations right. and after a few weeks they're empty. Uh, that doesn't mean that there are people out in the company that have no ideas for improvement. Uh, in the work that we do, we, we constantly see uh, a lot of improvement that's driven as a result of our planning process. But, it, it, it takes a lot of heavy lifting to get people to really engage beyond because they've kind of built up some, some tunnel vision coming into work every day, doing the same thing over and over, and, and they haven't really been asked to think outside the box too often in many cases. So uh, that, that, that engagement from the, the leadership on down is really important. Is it also because maybe employees feel like that, yeah, they could put in their suggestion, but, you know, my employer's not going to do anything about it or I, my voice isn't going to be heard. Yeah, follow-up is um, is really important. That's why I really like, you know, doing town hall meetings every month as a, as a leader where everybody comes together. And when I say everybody, I mean everybody uh, in the organization. And, and, and we talk about wins and losses, and we're, we're honest about that. And we bring a perspective from outside the four walls of the organization, the people we serve, what, how do they feel about us? How, what are we doing well and what are we not doing so well? And then always having some Q&A at the end where um, uh, people feel they can, they can ask questions. In some organizations, I find the first six months you don't get a lot of questions, so you have to plant a few. Uh, and I like planting a few really tough ones, maybe even some where the leader has to say, we don't know the answer to that question, but we're going to find out and get back to you. So that over time the place opens up and you start getting more of the hard questions and, and people feel like they're in a more vibrant environment now where they can push back or they can ask tough questions. 
And, and, and again, that's what builds that growth mindset and, and builds a healthier culture. But there's got to be that follow-up, right? That if, if you Absolutely. do say that, if you, oh, I'll get back to you, you've got to follow through on that. Absolutely. And, and, you know, to your point, that's why a lot of ideas like suggestion boxes or even employee surveys, I can't tell you how many companies I see do employee surveys. We get some good data, but then there's never any circling back with employees. So, you know, they want to know, yeah. like, well, you took the time. I took the time to fill this out. It took me 30 minutes. So w- what happened? Uh, was anything going to come of it? And sure. I think that's really important to come back with an action plan. So, Jude, just in closing here, I was hoping that uh, you could tell us if there's one trait, and there are a lot of them that you've, that you've put forth here. There's a lot we could do as leaders to improve. If there's one trait that we could adopt today that could serve us best now, which one would it be? Oh, that's a really tough question. I, you know, I, I, I typically go back to the emotional intelligence piece, and, and, and frankly, the reason I hesitate is you can't adopt it in a day. Um, that takes a lot of work, but like many aspects of leadership, I do think that you can, um, uh, you can develop it and learn it. I know I learned a lot from my wife on that when I grew up as an only child, and I was pretty self-aware, but it took me many years to really develop the empathy and, and the ability to look at things through the people I was working with, uh, through their eyes. And, and uh, you know, for me, it was helpful to surround myself with people who were good at that. And I'm a big believer in that. Even as a kid, when I went out to play a sport, I always tried to go with my buddy who could beat me uh, rather than one I could beat because I figured I'd learn something more from them. And oh, that's great. I think that's I think it's true in the workforce. You know, you, you got to be secure enough to surround yourself with people who, who are going to complement your skills and maybe do something better than you can. Hopefully you can help them too. And I think that takes a, a, a high level of emotional intelligence. I think we're seeing more women and millennials in the workforce who expect that from their leaders. Uh, so that's, that would be my number one choice. Well, Jude, we really appreciate your time here on the Matt Townsend Show this morning. His name is Jude Rake, and he's a proven leader with a 30-plus year track record of building businesses to create economic value. And his new book is The Bridge to Growth, How Servant Leaders Achieve Better Results and Why It Matters Now More Than Ever. Go check it out. We are going to take a quick break. When we return, we're going to be doing some more empty news here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. As promised, we're going to do another MT News story here. <sighs> There's a Florida man who tried to jump a canal with his car. Not smart. Probably not the best idea. Sheriff deputies say a man attempted to jump a canal with his car near Fort Myers, Florida. Witnesses say they saw a man in a blue Toyota Corolla. I used to own one of those. Drive to the edge of the canal and stop. Then he got out of the car to observe the distance got back into the vehicle and tried to make the jump of about 20 feet. His vehicle had to be towed out of the canal. Deputies say the man was not injured, but the car was totaled. A map of the area shows that 5th Street West, just two blocks away, could have provided easy access across the canal 
The sheriff's office is still investigating. See, it's a great example of how sometimes just a little bit of extra effort goes a long way, you know, and it can save you a lot of headache. Anyway, we're going to take another quick break before coming back and giving you the tangent from Leanna Tan, our wonderful producer, about Halloween. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Every year we celebrate Halloween and kids and adults dress up and go to parties, participate in trunk or treats, and run around neighborhoods gathering candy. But when did this yearly celebration begin and why does it hold such an influential space in our yearly calendar? Well, producer Leanna Tan explains the history of Halloween. I was on the phone with my mom the other day telling her about my weekend. I told her about the corn maze and the haunted trail and all the fake blood and guts and scary noises. And then she said that people these days don't even know what Halloween really is about anymore. So I decided to look it up on History.com to figure out what it really is and then enlighten you all on what I've learned. So gather around and let me take you back 2,000 years ago. Two centuries ago, there was a group of people called the Celts who lived in a land now known as Ireland. The Celts were a religious people and celebrated their new year on November 1st because it was the end of the summer harvest and the start of the dark, cold winter. Back when they had no indoor heating, plumbing, electric stoves, or refrigerators, winter was a time associated with death. The Celts believed the night before the new year, the living world and dead world combined, and the ghosts of the dead returned to the earth. The ghosts may have sometimes caused trouble or damaged crops, but they also made it easier for Celtic priests to predict the future. So, the priests built big, sacred bonfires, and people gathered to burn animals and crop sacrifices to the Celtic gods. They wore different animal heads or skins as costumes and tried telling each other's fortunes. Then, the Romans came in and conquered the Celtic lands. They decided to combine some of their own festivals with the Celtic celebrations. They combined their celebration of the passing of the dead with the Celtic New Year's Eve, as well as their celebration honoring the goddess of fruit and trees. That's where the bobbing for apples tradition came about. Then, when Christianity spread to the Celtic lands, they decided to add in another festivity on the same day too, called All Souls Day, to honor all the deceased Christian martyrs and saints. That's when people started dressing up like saints, angels, and devils, not just animals. All Saints Day, which was now part of a mixture of a few Roman celebrations as well as the Celtic New Year, was also called All Hallows Day. And so the day before the New Year was called All Hallows Eve, which eventually morphed into Halloween. But then came good old America. Once a holiday gets introduced to the great land of the free, it's ingested, misconstrued, reconstructed, and spat out as something completely different. So, Americans heard about this celebration, mostly from all the Irish immigrants flooding to the country, and threw in a few of their own ideas. They started having play parties, where people shared stories of the dead, told each other's fortunes, danced, and celebrated the harvest. They also played tricks on each other and then dressed up and went from house to house asking for food or money. (laughs) Sounds like something Americans would throw in there. 
And soon the holiday became more about pranks, partying, costumes, and food than honoring the dead or the saints or asking the gods for a good harvest. By the beginning of the 20th century, Halloween lost most of its superstitious and religious meaning and now, like most other holidays, is just a way for a Walmart to make bank off costumes, obesity rates to skyrocket, and an excuse for sadistic enthusiasts to get satisfaction out of frightening others. But that's not the only thing that changed. Did you know Halloween used to be a day of matchmaking? Yeah, they did some pretty weird stuff. Apparently, girls were obsessed with trying to figure out who their husbands would be. I guess that hasn't changed all that much. But fortune tellers told young women to name a hazelnut for each of their suitors and then toss them into the fireplace. The nut that turned into ashes instead of popping represented the girl's future husband. And it was said if she ate a sweet treat made of walnuts, hazelnuts, and nutmeg before bed on Halloween, she would dream about her future husband. They also did this thing where they tossed apple peels over their shoulders in hopes that the peels would fall on the floor in the shape of their future husband's initials. Sounds like everyone would be marrying someone with the initials C, Q, or O to me. And get this. They also stood in front of mirrors in the dark, holding candles and looking over their shoulders for their husbands' faces. No wonder this holiday turned into a day of horror. Maybe it wasn't the darkness or candles that was so terrifying, but finding out what their husbands would look like, you know what I mean? So, now you know. Halloween isn't actually about masked men with chainsaws. It's about honoring the deceased. But for my mother's consolation, yes, I may be out running from masked demons and hooded figures, but at least I'm not standing in front of a dark mirror looking for my husband. Well, happy hauntings, everyone. I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You're listening to the Matt Townsend Show here on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143. Welcome back. We are still Dr. Mattless, but do not despair. He will be back soon. He's in beautiful Georgia. Anybody ever been to Georgia here? Atlanta? No. No. No? I don't think I know any other cities in Georgia. There's all those Anybody? cities in The Walking Dead that they go to around Atlanta. Really? Just because they film it down there. Right. Can anybody name one other Georgia city? Augusta. Augusta. Macon. Macon, Georgia. Is it Macon? Wow. Yeah, that's probably it. Okay. I really don't know my geography. In Athens, Georgia, I think. That's where Ugga's at. Yep. Yeah, Ugga's down there. Did you guys learn this from watching Walking Dead? College football. College football. Golf. Ah, that's why I don't know. Okay. <laughs> it's just down there. I, mean. <laughs> I don't know anything other than Major League Baseball, and I probably don't even know that as well as I ought to with how much I watch. And I know it's Fulton County because that was the stadium the, the Braves played in, right? Okay. I'm just um, So you because of college football. Then they football, knocked it down. Cole because of The Walking Dead. I'm learning a lot about you guys here this morning. Uh, we are, in just a bit here, we're going to be talking about how you can rescue a struggling relationship. I'm grateful that I don't have one, apparently, or hopefully. I hope my wife hasn't called Dr. Matt and said otherwise. Yeah. It's a distinct possibility. <laughs> Anyway, we'll we'll be revisiting a, an interview that Dr. Matt had with Diane Barth about rescuing struggling relationships. We're going to be speaking with Spencer and Jerem, who are still in Las Vegas, uh, covering a big game. And uh, no, it's media ooh. day. Oh, it's Yesterday media day. was women's basketball. Today is men's basketball. 
See, I think we've already established how little I know about sports. There you go. And we've just furthered that. Um, but I do know that they're going to be talking about a game that's coming up this weekend with the BYU Cougars, who are 1-6. But thank goodness, so uh, is the team that they're going to be facing off against this weekend. Whew. So the there's a East chance. East Carolina Pirates. The Pirates. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're familiar with Pirates, right? The Pittsburgh kind that play not baseball. Like, not like the kind on the sea, but yeah, the Pittsburgh. Right. Yeah. Uh, this okay. is Tony Romo's alma mater, I believe. Is it? Really? Well, no, who's Tony Romo? He's the, he's the, Tony Romo's is the barbecue ribs no. guy, right? No, no. Is, is that different? Quarterback from the Bronx or the Dallas Cowboys that now does the color, the color analyst commentary? for CBS TV. He is but you've heard of Tony Romo's, right? Yeah, but that's not what he said. He said Tony Romo, and it was very distinct oh. with the Romo. Romo sounds a little more Greek or Italian or something. I just didn't know if he had bled into like common everyday life. <laughs> Apparently he hasn't, so that's good. If it's food or baseball, I'll probably know about it. Anyway, uh, that's coming up here on the Matt Townsend Show here in just a bit. But first, let's head over to Terry South and find out what's going on around the rest of the country. On Wednesday, the White House Press Secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, told reporters asking about the state of the North American Free Trade Agreement that it's not yet dead. Not yet dead. Not yet. Bring That's out, a great know, the, diagnosis. The whole bring out your dead for Monty Python. I'm not <laughs> dead yet. Imagine if your doctor came out to you said, well, you're not yet dead. All right. So Trump's final decision on NAFTA has been widely anticipated. Last week, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau met with Trump at the White House and called for maintaining a fairer agreement that would produce better outcomes for the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. Canada's foreign minister Uh, Carista Freeland characterized the Trump administration's proposal as turning back the clock on 23 years of predictability, openness, and collaboration under under NAFTA. Trump has remained less than forthcoming about his intentions. We'll see what happens, Trump said in the Oval Office when asked if NAFTA was dead. He would uh, interrupt so much commerce that is going on between Canada, Mexico, and the U.S. with the change to NAFTA. Wasn't that part of his inaugural speech, too? We'll see what happens. Yeah, usually. (laughs) Pretty much everything's. We'll see. Everything's on the table. The Democratic National Committee will consider a resolution that calls on independent Senators Bernie Sanders from Vermont and Angus King of Maine to run as members of the Democratic Party in 2018. Although the resolution sponsored by the California Democratic National Committee member Bob Mulholland recognizes the important contributions of the independent senators from Maine and Vermont to cause the heart of the Democratic Party's mission, it calls for candidates and voters to share common goals and beliefs to register or affiliate with the Democratic Party in 2017 and 2018 and beyond. In July of 2017, Morning Consult released its rankings of America's most popular and least popular senators. Both Sanders and King were in the top 10 of the most popular senators in the country. So the Democrats want them on their side. Now, I could get behind Sanders if for no other reason than to see Larry David portray him on Saturday Night Live. It'd be a much better presentation, I think. Yes. Senator Thad Cochran from Mississippi, I believe, his health is reportedly in question as he returned to the Senate this week after an extended absence due to urological issues. Ooh. Yeah. Politico described Cochran on Wednesday as frail and disoriented, reporting that the 79-year-old veteran lawmaker needed a staffer to remind him where the Senate chamber is located. 
Oh, you know, a place he's been going to for years. This on has years. kind of been a discussion lately with all these uh, people in office that are getting up there in age, like Orrin Hatch and Diane Feinstein. We had a guest on talking about this. Yeah, should there be an age limit? That's right. Thinking about, you know, I mean, these if they run, run some of these senators run for office again, it'll put them in their high eighties, maybe early nineties, and you're like, really? And then you get this situation. One, in one amendment they were voting on, Cochran voted yes, despite being told by an aide to vote no. The staffer tried to get the senator to switch his vote, but Cochran kept flashing the thumbs-up sign, even walking over to the clerk, tallying the votes and doing so. GOP floor staffers repeatedly told him the leadership wanted a no vote. Several more moments passed before Cochran realized that he was voting the wrong way and then Whoops. changed his vote. So you're huh. watching this guy kind of look disoriented and not know where the Senate chamber is, and then he doesn't know what vote's happening, and his aides are telling him, no, you've got to do it the other way, and he's, no, no, this is the right way. And So depending kind of on what side you're on, having somebody getting up there in age, having one of your colleagues be up there could be a good thing. It just doesn't seem like it's a nice way to govern a country. Sure. We'll see. Who knows? Age limits? <laughs> I don't know. We'll see what happens. Uh, Netflix gave it, put out their uh, quarterly... Uh, results last couple days. I'm uh, they put a, they added a whole bunch more people to their service, and they're going to spend eight billion dollars next year. And all this raising other their stuff. prices, they're going to raise their prices by a dollar to eleven bucks for Those most monsters. subscribers. Most U.S. households pay for Netflix more pay for Netflix than Amazon and Hulu. Nielsen ratings: fifty-one percent of U.S. households subscribe to Netflix, which is far more than uh, the rivals. Amazon Prime is at twenty-eight percent. U.S. households, while Hulu is at 12 of U.S. households, hmm. users spend more than half uh, more time on Netflix than its top three rivals combined. Wow. Netflix announced for nearly half of the internet streaming time spent by U.S. adults. According to Nielsen data, Netflix is 46% of time streaming is for American adults oh is on Netflix. So wait, the three top rivals are, are Amazon, Hulu, and what's the other one? YouTube. YouTube. YouTube's at 15%, Hulu's at 8 and Amazon's at 4 And then there's another 27% of other, which is, you know, all these other tiny, <laughs> small ones you probably... If you have the an illegal a, ones. If you have an Apple TV and you scroll through, there's like Crackle and all these other sure, different yeah, ones, and yeah. they probably have a percentage here and there. But vast majority on Netflix. Hmm. And the other ones are Sounds about right. struggling to keep up. They're going to put out 80 movies next year, they said, ranging from... Million dollar, say like a Sundance independent type film to a full Hollywood block, blockbuster, yeah. multi million dollar presentation. So we'll see what they do. See, this might be terrible of me, but I'm kind of at a point now where when I uh, ask other people if they have Netflix, I'm always surprised when they say no. It's almost like you don't have a cell phone. Yeah, you're like, what? What are you doing? Yeah. I mean, what do you it's, watch? It's just, yeah. And then they're like, oh, you know, I watch TV. <laughs> I turn over and see what's on the networks. And you're like, mm. I read books. And then, and then, what? and then the only thing you can possibly do is judge their uh, ability to make an informed decision. That's really what it comes down to. You're not watching Basically. Netflix. I mean, come on. Why don't you follow the rest of the sheep who are all on Netflix, right? <laughs> I can't listen to you. You don't know what happened on Stranger Things. Yeah, what's going on? That comes out next week, doesn't it? Yep. It's right at, right before Halloween. Woohoo! So I found this. thought this was interesting. It's a new sport. Well, air quotes, sport. Okay. I think we're applying sport very liberally Solution. to things. Yeah. Um, but it's called binge racing. 
binge racing. Defined as plowing through a streaming network series full season in less than 24 hours after the release of those episodes. Any viewer may speak of binging on a chosen show, by which they may mean watching several episodes in two or three sittings. That's how I do it. Yeah. Because once I get to that fourth episode, I feel like I'm just not living up to my potential. You have some restraint. You're showing self-restraint. I and did, Netflix I, asks you, yeah. are you still watching? When, when Netflix goes, are, are, you, you? are you still there? I'm like, oh, wait. And I think the follow-up question is, what are you doing with your life? Yeah. Do you feel more depressed now after you've <laughs> goes, binge racing is an extreme sport, a test of eyeball stamina and, as it says, derriere endurance. And a eyeball test- stamina. A testament to ultimate devotion. It also confers bragging rights to those who manage to complete this marathon. Netflix, which from the start defined TV's old age, uh, they defied TV's old age practices of parsing out episodes mm-hmm. week after week. They just dump the whole, the whole season at the same time so you can watch as many as you want. Um, so what they're, the, the people here, Brian, it says, we've seen it increasing over the years, says Brian Wright, Netflix vice president of original series. And I equate it to wanting to be the first to see a new Star Wars film or lining up to see the, to get the next Harry Potter book. You want to be first. You want to have that information. So it says uh, they wanted a language for that super fan who watches it all in one sitting, he said, and binge racing was bubbling up on social media. So it was kind of the, 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 the fans are the ones that came up with this idea. So it's during the same period when a total number of membership doubled, the number of same-day binge racers went from 200,000 in 2013 to more than 5 million so far this year. See, what I struggle with is are there really bragging rights or can you really brag about binging on something? Like if I came in after having just ate an entire cake all by myself in one sitting, would I really have the right to brag about that? I mean, I have the right, but... Who's going to be jealous? I don't know. It says, while most binge racers only take the challenge occasionally, when a certain special series demands a single big gulp, one U.S. viewer has binge raced 36 times so far this year. Hey, guess what? I neglected my children. Yeah, exactly. According to Netflix number crunchers, West Virginia can boast the nation's highest number of binge racers, as computed by the percentage of binge racers among the state's local Netflix subscribers. Right behind it are Michigan, Maryland, Delaware, and Indiana. Uh, Alaska and Hawaii come in last. Apparently, those people have better things to do with their time. Uh, Binge racing countries, Canada is number one. United States, Denmark, Finland, Norway, Germany, Mexico, Australia, Sweden, and Brazil are the top ten when it comes to countries. So it's only a matter of time before this gets in the Olympics is what you're saying. Right, right. We'll just have couches and people just hanging out. We're pacing for a silver right now. We need to step it up, country. Yeah. But, I mean, you can't really do it any faster. You have to watch the whole episode, right? Well, you you can skip the intro sometimes. And you don't have to wait the full 30 seconds in between episodes. So it's more more of your your skill with the remote at key moments is how you win. If they do, like, race against other people. So globally, the United States is the binge racing runner-up to the world champ Canada. And it's just, it seems, these figures are computed by percentage of binge racers among each country's number of customers. So they kind of balance it that way. See, now, here's one of the downsides of binging. Aside from uh, maybe some of the psychological damage that you would cause your children, or maybe some of the ocular damage you would cause yourself, if if you're binging something, presumably... The show that you're binging is so good that you have to watch it repeatedly. So what do you do when it's over? That's why I like watching one, maybe two at a time. Just kind of let it go out over a weekend or Don't a week. Don't you want to prolong and, yeah. the pleasantry or yeah, the pleasantness this, of it? But there's people, you get to the end and there's a cliffhanger, but they love the idea that you don't have to wait. My mm. wife and I, way back when, 
the show 24 was on. My brother gave oh, yeah. my brother gave us uh, let us borrow his DVDs, and they're evil because you get that ticking clock at the end as it finishes the hour, and then the clock just starts again, and you're like, you go to get up, you're like, oh wait a second, you sit back down, and it's another forty <laughs> minutes, and you're done. Then you go to stand up again, the clock, and then you sit back down because the clock keeps ticking; it never stops. Yeah, I'm willing to bet you get twenty four is one of the first shows that people were binging as that show started coming out on DVD. Right, because there were plenty of people watching it on TV, sure, but once that thing came out on DVD. Holy cow, that was one of the biggest offenders. I heard a funny story from Kiefer Sutherland about the voiceovers that he would do. Mm -hmm. You know, the following takes place between 2.05 p.m. and 3.05 p.m. I guess they kept recording those every season until they realized, wait a minute. They're all the same. We have all of these on file. (laughs) Let's just use it from last year. Why are we doing this again? Yeah, Yeah, that's funny. So the most, uh, what, binge TV shows on Netflix... Any ideas what the number one would be? Uh, I'm going to guess Walking Dead is going to be one of them. No. They're talking original. Oh, original. Let's see. Hold on. Let me make sure this is. Original. eh, Yeah. It looks like these are original Netflix shows. What's the Ozark. No. House of Cards. Uh, Those aren't even on the list. Ozark is not on the list. Wow. Okay. Uh, Then. No, these are binge raced, meaning you watch them all in a row. But they're Netflix originals. Yeah. Gosh, there's so many of those that just come and go. I don't even. Yeah. Uh, Master of None. Uh, no. Stranger Things. We it's on there. Stranger that's, Things got to be on yeah. ten. Number ten. All right. There really? are nine shows people watch. You're faster. kidding me. No. I have no idea. Yeah, you have to have an in-depth knowledge of what what are a Netflix original program. The number one is Gilmore Girls. Oh, the reboot of that. Mm. I have heard well, a lot of people reboot. are into Gilmore Girls. The continuation of it. Yeah. So I guess okay. Arrested, Nivel- Development Arrested Development is a Netflix no, original. By it's the not on here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Fuller House is number two. Ugh. Wow. Yeah, which of course was panned by anyone that watched it, but people watched it <laughs> because they remembered their childhood, right? I'm grateful in a way that it's doing so well. Marvel's Defenders is number three. Which okay. was which was yeah. did, didn't receive great acclaim either, but people watched. I watched it. I didn't watch it in any sort so, of speed. But can we round out the others with uh, the other Marvel shows like Daredevil no, or Jessica Jones? They're not or even Luke on the Cage. list. And most of these I've seen. I like. There's one called The Ranch. It's actually a sitcom <laughs> with, uh, with a laugh track. I've watched most. Of, it's actually quite. I think it's kind of an interesting show. Okay. To watch. Um. And uh, yeah, there's other shows on there, but you probably haven't heard of them. Wait, finish off the top ten because I've heard of all those so far. Seven Deadly Sins. Never heard of that one. Santa Clarita Diet. I have heard of that with Drew Barrymore. Trailer Park Boys. Yes, and an actor from that show just died. Actually, F is for Family. I think it's a cartoon. Yeah, or an that's, animated uh, feature. What's that comedian's name? Bo Bo Burnham? No. Anyway, and then Orange is the New Black, which is one of their. Crowning achievements. Yes. So I, you see, you see that that I just don't understand. I, I I have tried to watch multiple episodes, and after about two, I'm like, I need to go do something with my day. Sure. I could sit here all day. I'm going to go into some sort of like physical like like just your legs don't work anymore. You start cutting off circulation because you're just <laughs> sitting in one spot. You just need to move. But you hear people. Like a new show comes out and it's Monday. It comes out on say Friday night, Saturday night, and by Monday they're done. And I'm like, I've watched like one episode. What exactly. We, I yeah. have things to do. I can't sit there and watch a show for twelve hours. Now, will you sit there and fold laundry, or will no. you stand up and iron clothes? No, I go do other things. Okay. When I I'm not 
I don't like to do things when I watch. I, I'll sit on my computer and just aimlessly click around when I watch TV, but I don't want to do like chores and work when I watch TV. <laughs> I mean, there's only so much attention. I don't I can want give to something. exert energy. I do that. I like listen to the radio or podcast or something when I'm folding clothes. So okay. you do that separately. Interesting. You have to divide your media diet here. That's good. Yeah. And you mentioned the Santa Clarita diet too. Well, that was that's a, show. a different kind of different diet. Different kind though. of diet. So, we but yeah. So just interesting how uh, what, how Netflix is growing. They're also losing a lot of content as the big networks are starting to launch their own streaming services. So it'd be Disney's interesting going taking forward. away content. So going forward, you'll start to see how they try to adjust to that by making their own known their own. Uh, television shows their own movies and try to put those products out there for you and we'll see if it takes off or not it is so interesting though that you know the negative connotation that used to come with being like a television actor you Mm -hmm. know and now all these really famous people are going to netflix and amazon and even hulu it's crazy there's some freedom there yeah they're going to give you a season before they just they give you two episodes and then cancel your show because no one watched it you're not going to get canceled yeah it's well, fantastic. You'll get canceled eventually, yeah. but they'll at least give you a shot. They'll yeah. give you a chance to put the full season. People can watch the full product and go, oh, that was a good show, or no, it wasn't. But you could have half a million viewers and still be considered a, cons- a success, you know? Right. Sure. Well, the- ne- Netflix will never report it, so you'll right. never actually know. But yeah, sure. <laughs> the best part of football season for me, though, is seeing all the new shows that the networks are churning out and guessing which ones will fail after two to three episodes. It's usually because they the, look terrible. The high fifty percent. The yep. high. They just start after a few weeks, a few months. You'll hear, oh, that one got canceled. That one's gone. That one's not coming back. They just shorten that guy's season. Oh well. So are they know. are they paying attention to social media then to see? Oh, this show is Some really that. not popular. Some of that. A lot of it. I mean, there's shows that get routinely panned by say reviewers but they get enough viewers to make it you know work money wise to keep them on the air to sell ads against them so that's why like the fuller networks. house you mentioned fuller house well shows of that sort of ilk where it's a you know a, it's a comedy there's a laugh track it seems like they just keep cranking these out and you watch it and it's kind of it's kind of the same show but it, it just keeps working because people like that you know, it's comfortable. It's easy to watch. You kind of just watch it and laugh. So I guess people like that, and they can make money off it. I will admit I have seen Fuller House, and it did make me think about my childhood. So there you go. For which I am grateful. I have refrained. Thank you, Fuller House. Self-control. Get some. We talked about happiness. <laughs> I was happy while watching it. Okay. I, I only watched a few episodes, but— And that's all know. it should be. It should be a distraction. Hopefully it makes you feel better about your five moments of watching that show. There we go. There you go. All right. Well, as promised, uh, coming up next, we're going to be revisiting a, an interview that Dr. Matt did with Diane Barth on how to rescue a struggling relationship. Hopefully you don't have one of those, but if you do, we're going to give you some tips on what you can do. Coming up next on the Matt Townsend Show. There are many things that get in the way of a relationship. Life is hectic and kids take time away from a couple spending time together. These other responsibilities can suffocate a relationship and may lead to a breakup. 
Well, Diane Barth is a licensed clinical social worker. She leads uh, private study groups in New York and workshops for therapists around the country. Diane wrote an article that explains how to rescue a struggling relationship. And uh, Dr. Matt Townsend talked with Diane Barth a few months ago and began the interview by asking Diane, what are the top things couples bring to you to fix or discuss? It's really interesting. So traditionally, it was that, um, you know, it was uh, children, money, and sex, and not necessarily in that order. Um, but uh, this, this um, research that's recently been done says that really almost all of these things can be fixed if you pay attention to something that's much in, in, on the one hand, much simpler, and on the other hand, much more difficult, which is um, the issue of self-esteem and self-actualization in a relationship. Hmm. Like self-actualization, that reminds me of um, the Maslow hierarchy of needs. Yeah, exactly. So is that exactly. the same thing? It is, and it's interesting that you have uh, exactly. I mean, so Maslow's hierarchy of needs starts with sort of the basic needs for food and shelter. Um, and then at the very top is the need for self-actualization and self-esteem. And, what, and these um, researchers decided to call their model of, um, of marital difficulties and relationship difficulties the suffocation model because when you get to the top of that hierarchy, you uh, run out of oxygen mm. or the oxygen is much thinner. So what they, their theory is that the best way to, um, uh, to resuscitate or to rescue a marriage these days is because we look to our partners for um, uh, both a sense of our own self-esteem and also for a sense that we can move forward and be who we want to be, whether it's as a parent or as a community person or, as a, or in a career um, the, the rescue has to do with being able to sort of provide more oxygen in these areas. So it's, it's almost like, because Maslow's hierarchy discussed the fact that our basic needs need to be met, the physical needs, food, shelter, clothing. Eventually we move up higher to, you know, a connection, relationship needs, and then right. self-actualization. So is, right. is what we're running into with this theory is the idea that what makes relationships difficult today is we're now asking our partners to be a major part of our self-actualization. Yes, exactly. Which exactly. is the hardest, most ethereal level of all of our development, and yet I'm, I'm expecting my partner to bring that to me. It is indeed, and it gets more complicated because um, you're also providing it for your partner. Right. And so it's a really interactive process, and if your partner is not... Um, you know, massaging your self-esteem, you're not going to massage theirs either. Mm. Yeah, and who's so it becomes a, a real vicious cycle? Whose self-actualization wins? Right, right? it's like the <laughs> battle of exactly. Holy cow! Yeah. Unbelievable. And, I mean, you see this all the time, right? Yeah. So, so you see it with a couple who's just had a baby, and all of a sudden, one of them is paying more attention to the baby and less attention to the partner. And so then instead of being able to say, you know, okay, let me support. And it is that, you know, these days it can be the wife or the husband. It's, it's, um, it's not uh, so gender uh, determined anymore. But instead of saying, 
um, you know, I have enough self-esteem to be able to support my partner as they provide the care and love and, and um, needs for the baby, um, some of us, you know, and, and I think this happens to everybody at some time. We feel like, oh, this is being taken away from me. Mm. I used to get that attention. Now the baby's getting the attention. Right. And then we become critical of our partner. We become critical of the baby instead of being able to be in a partnership where everybody's sort of supporting everybody in the process. It, um, I, I guess it's, it's funny because if, if I went to maybe a third world country or another place in the world that doesn't have as much as we have here in the yeah. West, they, they may not be looking for self-actualization. <laughs> they yes. might just be looking for dinner. Right, exactly. Exactly. Right and a safe think, home and a yeah. yeah. Now I actually believe that probably if we were anthropologists or sociologists and we dug a little bit that we would see that it's not really such a clear cut separate right. hierarchy. That even when you're looking for dinner, you also would like some love and affection, mm-hmm. and you also would like some, you know, giving you some value. And the interesting thing about the theory is it's called the suffocation. Right. model. And that's what I see a lot. I use a metaphor about smoke and fire and how a lot of people just can't breathe because they're not, they're, they're fighting too much in the smoke instead of dealing with the real issues. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Exactly. So they are suffocating yeah. in their marriage. Yeah. How do we get out of that? How do we start creating more air and space? Well, it's actually very simple in theory, <laughs> yeah. which is that, as I mean, and I see this with couples when I'm working with them all the time, as soon as I can get them to start to talk about the things that they actually still in this moment admire about each other, you can almost watch them both start to breathe. Hmm. There, there's a, there's, you know, you can see the oxygen starting to fill their lungs. Um, because I think that really we, we don't usually marry somebody or become totally involved with somebody who we don't admire on some level right. and who we don't have some, um, <clears throat> excuse me, some sense of, of um, real their value. But when we're feeling like they're not valuing us or we're not getting what we need from them or when we're feeling competitive with them about so they've got just got a promotion and instead of the old days where we could be pleased that, um, you know, our spouse got a promotion, so it means more money for the family. These days, a lot of couples are two career couples. And so the other person feels like, oh, what's wrong with me that I didn't get a promotion? Hmm. That's so so true. as, As soon as a couple can start to express some of their admiration for each other and, and positively reinforce each other, the vicious cycle actually starts to diminish, and the um, and the air gets clearer, and they can breathe again. And it's I guess it is it it's expression, and then um, I guess reception of yes. what the person's saying, and and I, sometimes too I guess it's believing what they're saying. Exactly. Now that's a really good point, and it's really hard to give that kind of positive reinforcement to somebody who doesn't believe it. Mm. And, and that, again, is a two-way street. It's, it's, it, uh, do they not believe it because you've been so critical that they can't believe you're saying something positive? Right. 
or do they also not believe it because their self-esteem is, is you know, down in the dumps right now? And what, what needs to happen to make that improve? Mm. It really is. I think it's an interesting theory and insight. Again, we're speaking with Diane Barth, and we'll take a break, come back, continue this discussion about how to rescue a struggling relationship uh, one simple way might be to understand the suffocation model and how to uh, start to validate our partner and and uh, maybe give that air to our partner. Stick with us. Continuing Relationship 101. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends. Today, we are speaking again with Diane Barth, our good friend, licensed clinical social worker uh, from the New York area and uh, teaches workshops there, leads private study groups as well, and is the author of the book entitled Daydreaming, Unlock the Creative Power of Your Mind. Diane, thank you so much and welcome back. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. You've been talking to us about uh, how to rescue a struggling relationship. One part of that is... I guess it, people need to be they they need they need to be understood. They need to be valued. They need to be appreciated. And when they're not, they start to suffocate. Yes. What else can we do to promote self esteem? To promote self actualization in our relationships? Well, it's it's um, an interesting again um, finding from this uh, research that was done out at um, Northwestern University. One of the things they said is that we are so busy um, actualizing ourselves, actually, in, in our modern world and in this society, that we don't put enough time and energy and attention into our relationship itself. Hmm. So, you know, I mean, I don't know how you all are feeling about this, but certainly I'm hearing this all yeah. the time, you know. I don't have time to do this. I've got to take my kids to soccer and my kids to, you know, French lessons. And then I've got my meetings and my husband's got his meetings. And, you know, and people don't have time to actually breathe life into their relationship. It's almost like you need relationship actualization. Exactly. Exactly. And we're so caught up in the self and the child actualization that the marriage fails. That's right. And I think we take for granted um, that the marriage is going to be there. Just because it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what's she going to do? Leave me? Right, exactly. Right. And yeah. yes, that right. is. Right, <laughs> exactly. 70% of the time it is right. her leaving. Right. Um, yeah. That's it, though, huh? It, so it's the time that ends up suffocating. And I guess it's this idea that it's almost like we're trying to, we're trying to fulfill other needs by this self-actualization instead of realizing that a lot of it's going to come from having a really safe, loving relationship. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Hmm. Is there, uh, what do you see in your practice? What are some things that you do? I guess part of it is just talking about it, getting it out in the air. That is part of it. But one of the things I get people to talk about is what did they do before they got so busy? Um, Did they sit and watch football together? Did they, um, did they go for walks together? Did they go to the movies together? In other words, you don't have to sit and talk right? Mm -hmm. What in fact you actually need is to spend time together. And so I encourage, you know, this is, this is an old idea, but it actually is even more valid today than it's ever been, which is I encourage people to have date nights. Yeah. And, and to go out, (laughs) one couple say to me, 
um, yeah, but what will we talk about? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, so you go to the movies, and then you can talk about the movie over dinner. Yeah, and just and relate, and almost how great to not have to talk about something but just connect, even just exactly. validate each other. Exactly, that's right. And, and that, I think, again, we're so goal-driven these days that we don't think about the fact that actually not talking about anything serious is really fine. It's lovely, right. you know? That's not what you did when you were, when you were, it, it, when any of us are in those romantic sort of early stages of a relationship, we don't sit and talk about uh, something. I mean, we do have serious conversations, but we also sit and look at the stars or, um, or go to a dumb movie together or, you know, or go to a concert. Even making time for each other says a lot. Yes. Exactly. And sometimes I guess that's all you need to know is that you'll always have someone there that will make the time. That's right. That's right. And that gets lost. And I, I think part of what um, I, it, the, these researchers don't say this exactly, but I think that part of what is happening is just what you said before, that we take for granted that the, that the basic needs are going to be met. And we yeah. take it for granted that our spouse or our partner is going to meet those needs. And really... It, taking it for granted is not a good idea because um, nobody wants to be taken for granted. Mm-mm. And I, that's, I guess, the key. I mean, you could almost see that uh, we could get to a point in our minds where we don't even think we need the relationship. Right, right. Because, every, you know, you're taking care of everything else anyway. Yes. I actually, uh, I have a personal story about that one. My um, husband and I, when, when, when our son was very little... We were both working, and I felt like I was doing everything. And, of course, I was yeah. getting madder and madder. And he got um, – he had to have some surgery, and all of a sudden he was incapacitated. Ugh. And all of a sudden I realized how much he had been doing. Unbelievable, yeah. Which I was completely not aware of and not at all grateful for. But I'll tell you, <laughs> once he recovered, I was very grateful and very verbal about the things he was doing and how grateful I was for Right. I guess we, we need to be maybe keeping our eyes open for that as well, right? Like, let's, like, check our stories. Yes, yes. But it's exactly what you said. I mean, we, we tend to think that we are doing the whole thing or, or we could do it by ourselves. And, um, and it's, yeah, it's very important to check that out because most likely you're not. And most likely, on the other hand, thinking that for either partner can then push the other one farther away. Oh, it's so true. And then, then you're playing catch-up. And once right. you're kind of behind, once you're, I mean, it's, it's almost like, I guess, somebody that really was suffocating. You know, if all of a sudden you realize you've been suffocating for 10 years, there's going to be damage. Yes, yes. And then you've got to fix it, that. But, but the thing that I have seen is that couples can go along for a long time without realizing that, that they're doing damage to themselves or yeah. to each other or to the relationship. But once you actually, if you make a conscious decision to start um, trying to bring some air back into the relationship, and the two really simple things are to pay attention to the relationship and to start to notice the things that you do admire and appreciate about your partner, um, it actually, the damage can be undone. Hmm. Yeah. Um, not always and not, you know, not if it's too extreme, but, but it can be undone. 
especially sure. if you want Good it to enough. be undone. That's right. That's right. You can pretty much make anything happen if you if you want it to. And are willing to work at if it. If both of you, I guess, are wanting yeah. it and willing. Well, I think it's fascinating. And again, awesome insight from you, Diane. Uh, Diane, where can they reach you? What's your website? Uh, it's, um, oh, I never know. Is it www.dianebarth.com? Or .net. .net, yes, yeah, thank .net. you. Yeah, <laughs> .net. I wanted to make I sure that was it. Fingertips, yeah. yeah, I know, I know. And again, they can find you on Psychology Today, and too, on as Psychology well. Psychology Today, yes. Diane, thank and you. There's also a link to the Psychology Today website on my on my web on your uh, web page. on your page awesome thank you again diane and keep up the great work there in new york we'll take a break as well and come back when we come back we'll visit our good buddies at byu sports nation find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour Viva Las Vegas, baby. Yeah. We're heading over to Spencer and Jerem, who are there right now. And uh, we're going to find out a little bit of what's coming up on their show. Spencer and Jerem, how you doing? Sports time from Las Vegas. You know what they always say, if one hour is good, two are better. And we have two (laughs) hours today. Unless it's two hours of surgery. Or of your favorite baseball team losing a game last night, right? Ah, you had to bring it up. You know what? They barely lost that game. That's all I'm going to say. And I will add, the Chicago Cubs are still, uh, they still have not scored a run against the bullpen, and they still have not scored a run outside of a home run. Isn't that crazy? And listen, it's going to be better when L.A. clinches in L.A. anyway. Yeah, seriously. Oh, I would prefer they didn't. I just prefer they do it tonight. Oh, Get tonight. it over yeah, with. Game five tonight. Get her done. Yeah, so if they lose tonight, they go back right. to uh, L.A. and it'll be Saturday. Oh, well, yeah. That's, that's true. I just, oh, man, I don't know. Clinching in L.A. would be legit. Clinching in L.A. would be You just want to go, though. You just want to go. Because yes. you're getting, you know, you, you're going to get home field you know what regardless. Hosting a World Series game in L.A., right? Oh, oh yeah. God, yeah. <laughs> what about those Yankees, though? They were down two games to none. Now they're up three to two. It was another Yankees win. <laughs> is that what they say? Well, they're John Sterling, the yeah, radio play-by-play, radio play-by-play guy. The Yankees win. <laughs> wow! So home he sings rise, it basically. And Aaron Judge, Judgment Day, home run. So my brother was convinced that the Houston Astros were going to win. Do you feel the same way? Uh, now, now, Jose Altuve and Carlos Gray have not been able to get it going. Uh, so can the can the Strohs get the top of the lineup hitting the the ball effectively because they haven't in this series, yeah. and I think the pitching from the Astros is pretty strong when they come home. They have they have uh, Dallas Keuchel and Verlander and company. I think they're ready to go, man. You know, as happy as I would be for the Astros to make it to the World Series, I'm I have to admit, how cool would it be? to have the East versus West in the World Series. The New, the New York Giants and the Los Angeles Dodgers. Yes, the Brooklyn the Dodgers versus the markets. Yes, L.A. versus New York. Absolutely. The Bronx versus Brooklyn, old Brooklyn. I think that's what, that's what baseball needs right now because, you know, there's so many other sports going on right now that are get, stealing some of the headlines from Major League Baseball. It, the NFL is king, okay, and then it's, I, I would say the start of the NBA season is exciting. It'll it'll cool off here in a sec. Uh, but, yeah, the World the World Series is big time, man. And if it is L.A. versus New York, that's the best possible national scenario. 
But if you're the Astros, they've done they've done everything but actually clinch the series. You know, they put themselves in a great spot. Five years ago, they just reset. They even switched leagues. Uh, so I'm interested to see what happens there. It's hard. It's hard to not be excited about a Yankees Dodgers World Series. Yeah, though. I know. The thing with the Yankees is they're playing with house money right now. They were not expected to be here, and now they're one game away. They're one game. It's away crazy. From the World they're, Series. they're playing like the 2004 Boston Red Sox. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And that could be good news for the Dodgers because Dave Roberts, the pivotal player in that series, yes. is the manager, the guy, the hero, right? Yeah, I I didn't even know this, but you know his stolen base is being referred to as the steal. It should be. It changed the entire series of the most dramatic comeback maybe in all of sports. Okay, so here's what I want to know because you bring up a good point. Is there anything that the BYU Cougars can do to completely switch things around like the New York Yankees have? Just beat ECU. And they have the start. same record as them, right? You got to start with a win somewhere. <laughs> Listen, there are some matchups that aren't that compelling and rich, okay? But they Story, are compelling and rich because lines, BYU has to win now. Storylines and blah blah blah. When the matchups are especially yeah. amazing, we do a movie trailer yes. live yes. on the air, okay? Today is one of those days, Jeffrey. Okay. Today is one of those days. So if you're doing a movie trailer, that means uh, it's preceded by a teaser trailer that you're going to share with us right now, right? In a world of two one and six teams. Oh, just a taste. Bring them. Ventures to the Carolinas for the first time. Just a taste. Which team <laughs> will pack their bags for a bowl game while the other unpacks a present? Whoa. That's I a, love that's it. A ta- that's a taste. Which team will have a chance to pack their bags for a bowl game? <laughs> not yeah. Even, yeah, not even uh, pack, just have a chance. So that's coming up on Saturday. Yeah, that's Saturday. We buried the lead, though. We're in Las Vegas. It's West Coast Conference. We're going to talk to the national coach of the year and the guy that coached his team to the national championship game last year. Mark Field Gonzaga, Randy Bennett of St. Mary's, Dave Rose of Brigham. Loaded guest lineup today, two-hour edition. Okay, and uh, hopefully you'll find some time in there to head on over to the M&M factory, too. Spencer has a 12-18 Pacific flight to catch, yep, and yep. We get out, the show ends at 11 Pacific, so that's going to be fun. Ooh, are you going to make Spencer that? Hasn't checked I out. don't know. We'll see. <laughs> I don't have to check a bag, so I'm feeling good. Wow. Okay, we'll have a safe flight and have a great show, you two, and uh, I expect to see some uh, M&Ms shared here on the Matt Townsend Show with us. Okay. We'll we'll go by the uh cream, to take care of that. The creamery outlet and get you some. <laughs> I'll take them any way I can get them. Thanks, Spencer and Jerem. Have a great show. Good Thanks, Jeff. Bye, Jeff. Boy, I hope I have uh, something exciting to share with them tomorrow when the Los Angeles Dodgers clinch their birth, their World Series birth, the first time since nineteen eighty eight. Since last year, though, the Cubs have not lost an elimination game. Remember, they did come back 3-0. Boy, they were close last night. They were so close to losing it last night. Pretty close last night, but still. Okay. They come in clutch. Okay. But the Los Angeles Dodgers have won six postseason games in a row this year. Which stat will cave first? The Cubs. Yeah, all right. Yeah. 
It is scary, though, because I do see the the New York Yankees, and I think there's no way the Dodgers can blow a 3 to nothing lead, and yet the Yankees were down two games to none, and now they're up three games to two. And, uh, yeah, those Yankees know how to come back. Anything <clears throat> is possible. Oh, let's hope. Here's hoping and dreaming and praying. Anyway, that's what's coming up on BYU Sports Nation. Actually, they're not going to be talking about the Los Angeles Dodgers, but they'll be talking more about uh, the BYU Cougars. We do, as you know, like to end each show of the Matt Townsend Show with our hero story of, of the day. And today is another great one. The mother of a toddler who turned blue and stopped breathing has praised two teenage girls for saving his life. Charlotte Brady was frantic when she ran into a convenience store in the U.K. with her 23-month-old son, Jordan, on Tuesday night. The toddler was floppy and unresponsive when 14-year-old Harley McNicholas and 15-year-old Lauren McMillan leapt into action. Together, the girls carried out CPR while offering reassurance to Jordan's panicked mother. Charlotte Brady said Jordan was a little bit sick on Tuesday. He was sitting on the sofa next to me around 7 p.m. when he started making a funny noise and I saw his head was in his lap. I picked him up and he'd gone blue and I shouted for my boyfriend to call an ambulance. I was in such a panic that I ran to the shop over the road to see if anyone could help. There were adults in there, and everyone just froze and went into panic mode. One of them called an ambulance, and the 911 operator told her to tell me to put the baby on the floor. They were trying to explain how to do CPR, and although I know how to do it, my mind went blank. Happens to the best of us. I was frantic until two girls came over, and they knew CPR and just took over. They were amazing. She added, Jordan started to come around, and as one of them did CPR, the other was calling his name and reassuring me at the same time. A little while later, the ambulance arrived and took over. Little Jordan spent the evening in the hospital and was discharged the next day. So, Harley McNicholas and Lauren McMillan, you're our heroes of the day for stepping in when the chips were down, when the pressure was high. You very calmly took charge of the situation, and you saved this child's life. Good for you. That's going to be it for the show today. We're here every morning, 7 a.m. Mountain Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time. We'll be back tomorrow. BYU Sports Nation is up next.